Hello and welcome to the back page of Video Games Podcast. I'm Samuel Roberts and I'm joined as ever by Matthew Castle. Hello. Matthew, we've come back to doing one of these best games of X year podcasts and I always enjoy these. Probably more than any other type of episode that we do. It's a good mix of mag memory stuff, of game memory stuff. Do you get as excited about them as I do? Yeah, I mean, it doesn't have the the, the same thrill as the risk of you potentially being put to death in Games Court. <laughs> um, but after that, yeah, definitely, it's it's um, like the the best sort of uh, cocktail of of uh, what I think we do best on this podcast. Yeah, uh, Games Court is in recess. Is that a thing that they do in court? I think it is. Yeah. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah wa- sure, why not? <laughs> <laughs> Wario is um, you know, is up to other stuff, and the monkeys <laughs> yeah. have been returned to their various, um, to their habitat in Rhythm Heaven. So, <laughs> yes, uh, this year then, Matthew, we're doing 2010 in this episode. So this is such a kind of monster year. I was wondering what you made of it, because when it came to assembling a top 10 for this year i could easily do 20 games i love from this year and i have a lot of honorable mentions were you in the same boat with this yeah absolutely i like i have about 10 games in also runs that were that also runs also runs either way that were at one point like in the main list and i just kept seeing things and going oh of course that i've got to put that in i think i've ended up creating a bit of a frankenstein list that's kind of half sort of head choices some heart choices and it's all kind of getting mixed in the order is probably massively off <laughs> <laughs> yeah you said that you're doing quite a lot of surgery before this episode right changing things around and yeah stuff. i just th- the thing about this year is it's like a classic year for games in terms of just like the critical consensus around certain games mm. but it's also like a year where on we and ds anyway like there there are so many like matthew essential titles Mm. things that just really really spoke to me that maybe aren't as critically acclaimed or definitely aren't as critically acclaimed and so that really threw me off because sometimes I was looking at some things and like this means a lot to me but you know Mm. is it churlish not to include xyz because of this so yeah we'll see what happens (laughs) I think what's good on that front is that my list this is probably the era that I wasn't paying attention to Nintendo at all. So there's not a single DS or Wii game on my list. And, right, okay. You know, so I can own up right now. I have not played Super Mario Galaxy 2. I know that's a, a big omission, but um, I had my head just in HD console games at this time. So my list is entirely made up of those, basically. And it's a banner year for those. But um, yeah, like a, a surprisingly good year for Nintendo as well. It's um I I think I always assumed at this point that the Wii was sort of dying down a little bit, but I don't know. You, not when you look at this year, it looks like it's in rude health, or that maybe this is like a wave of games that have emerged as a result of the early success of the Wii, and this is developers catching up a little bit. Do you think there's anything in that? Yeah, yeah, probably. I mean, it's it's kind of interesting. It's it's sort of an unexpected year in that it's like surprisingly hardcore, sort of following the kind of kind of casual wave, which I think you know, was sort of reached the low point the year before where they're really riding just, you know, the, the new audience that we've courted. And then, like, all of a sudden, you get this, like, rush of, like, revivals of quite strange stuff or quite kind of experimental takes on some, like, popular characters. Yeah, I, I was looking at our covers. This was a great run for Endgamer, I think. It was just, um, we had so much stuff. Like, there's 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 not really a, a bad cover choice Apart from there's a Super Scribble Noughts cover um, in February, but outside of that, <laughs> like they're you know 
they're just great games. They aren't just there out of necessity. So, yeah, it was... I'd somehow I'd sort of forgotten like how good we had it. I think we were just so drunk on games mm. that that it, it kind of uh, there's so many highs in there and they all kind of mix together that I've I I had forgotten just how good we had it and like DS as well kind of has a bit of a spectacular run because the uh, 3DS gets announced so for for a console for a, you know machine that late in its lifespan to have this kind of second wind yeah it was yeah quite unusual. I think by comparison, HD consoles were really just in the prime of their life as well. You'd had obviously like um, 2007 and 8, just you know that first kind of wave of amazing blockbusters. But in the second wave, you were getting a series that had already had one entry on uh, HD consoles coming back for another round. Um, you had you know different takes on certain genres that developers specialized in that really kind of took off this year. You had a couple of games from developers who have been working on uh, these titles for a long, long time, and I'm talking like years and years, that finally emerged this year. Two of the games in my list were games that I had been waiting for for four or five years. And so, you know, it was. Right. It ended up being a big year, just well, just a massive year for PS3 and Xbox 360. So, yeah, I was, um, I was excited going over this stuff. So, Matthew, when we do these episodes, we always talk a bit about what we were doing in mags at the time. So... What was um, Endgamer like in 2010? It was it was great. I felt like the mag had been kind of going long enough that it had sort of developed this kind of good kind of rapport with its readers. You know, everything was very, like, established at this point. We had our 50th issue, which was this big sort of anniversary issue. We did this big feature, which was quite a nostalgic look back. And I think when you look back over 49 issues, reading that feature again now, I was thinking, oh, yeah, like, we had done a lot of stuff. Like, we'd created this quite sizable chunk of kind of you know magazine coverage that we could kind of dip back into and you know the running jokes were really established we had all these weird little kind of comic characters it kind of hit the space which i think back on on n64 and ngc most fondly which is when they're a bit into their runs and they just really know what they're about and everyone's very kind of confident in itself and that coinciding with just a great year for games great year for covers you know that that magazine i think that's probably like its best stretch i'd say it's it's two best stretches was the very first year where i think mark green was just like powering us towards this like nintendo mania and this year where we we just really knew what we were what we wanted to do with it Mm, that's really cool that's a nice position to be in for sure just Mm. a really kind of like concentrated um team dynamic that's um that's rad uh, for me, I was on X360 at the start of this year, which was the, um, you know, I'm sure many of our listeners aren't familiar with this magazine, but it was a, an independent Xbox magazine, one of the best-selling ones. And um, it was a pretty straightforward, simple magazine, but we did start to do some interesting things with it, like more interesting types of features and stuff, trying to make it a bit spicier. I mentioned on the 2009 episode, I really loved this team. It was quite a tough year because I got moved from this magazine to Sci-Fi Now. And so it was honestly just a bit of a bummer. Mm-hmm. It was it ended up being probably in the long run. It might have been the thing that end. You might, if I hadn't done this, I might not have been editor of PC Gamer one day because this taught me a lot about Magcraft. So right. I think I do owe this era of my of um, working on uh, Sci-Fi Now a lot. It was a TV and film magazine. It was good, but it was like a, a completely different world to 
games media where it's like you know you ask a publisher can i interview this dev they either say yes or no here it's like you know okay the dark knight rises is coming out we know we won't get christopher nolan so who might we get at like an absolute push so that's like kind of where we were at we had some some good access and some really good freelancers but generally speaking, I didn't I didn't enjoy this year so much. Sci-Fi Now got better over time and became more fun. And um, we did some more interesting things with it. I was curious, Matthew, when it comes to the pop culture side of things, we always talk a little bit about what's going on TV and film at this time. So was there anything from this year that you saw as a highlight? I picked out some, um, some highlights here. I thought Inception was a yeah, big I, movie this year. This was a weird year for me because I was like really like going hard magazine-wise. Mm. And I, I was doing loads of freelance as well this was like quite a a lucrative year in terms of i got to write about some quite juicy stuff for like edge you know i did like heavy rain and red dead redemption and things like that so that was that was like super exciting so i was looking back over what was big culturally and a lot of it kind of passed like didn't pass me by but didn't write it like didn't really register with me i think i was i was just in such a end gamer mania zone Hmm. that a lot of it didn't register. What was what was big for you? Because I mean, this might spark some better memories. <laughs> yeah, sure. So um, Inception was the big film this year. I was kind of, um, I think working on Sci-Fi Now, I was slightly obsessed with that because it was like, you know, there's obviously this big budget original sci-fi film. Mm. And unlike Tenet, it wasn't completely incomprehensible. Um, so, you know, <laughs> a plus one for Christopher Nolan there. Uh, the Walking Dead started this year. A big thing that happened on Sci-Fi Now was that all of the old shows they used to cover died out, and we had some months where it was really, really hard to figure out what to do with the magazine. Right. Culminating in a Caprica cover. Remember Caprica? Battlestar Galactica spinoff? Just, um... Oh, yeah. Yeah, kind of like looked like Gattaca, but it was a bit... It was a bit of a dud. An interesting idea, but it didn't quite um, take off. So we were kind of like starved for stuff. Then The Walking Dead comes along, and suddenly it's like, oh, well, Frank Darabont's made a zombie show, and it's, like, actually pretty cool. It wasn't... It was never quite as good as it, people said it was, The Walking Dead, even mm-hmm. in its early days when it was really good. But obviously, while it had John Bernthal, it was like terrific, I thought. And so mm. when he goes, it becomes a completely pointless TV show, I think. But, um, you know, obviously it's been <laughs> running for years and years. So uh, Justified as well, that started this year. Um, Boardwalk Empire, oh, yeah. those were like big, you know. Yeah, you say that, it's reminding me. So it, it, it was during the, these years, in the summer, I started going to Comic-Con with, with a a very good friend of mine lives over in the states called cyrus and um i used to go and stay with cyrus and then we'd go and see we'd go he lived in new york and we'd, we'd have a we'd sort of bookend it with some time in new york and then we'd go over to LA, uh, to san diego and do um comic-con and so he yeah he used to see this stuff up but being announced and things but did i tell you about the inception thing i don't think so i've heard some of your comic-con stories including quite a traumatizing flight story you told me a few days ago which probably can't be repeated (laughs) on the air but um yeah (laughs) uh no beforehand yeah it was yeah it was this year we went to see uh inception in this in a cinema in the imac in an imac cinema in new york Hmm. and uh we were sitting at the back we queued up quite early to get good seats and we were like right in the back row so we had like this amazing view then 10 minutes before the film started this cinema attendant guy came over to us and was like we do, we, do you my guys mind if you move because mick jagger wants your seats <laughs> and we were like what we because we didn't know if this was like some scam just to get us out of our seats and if it was it was quite a weird scam and they were like yeah you know we, we he'd like to sit here and we have to remove the seats around because he doesn't want anyone sitting next to him right so like you know we'll move you into these other seats here and 
And so, yeah, we shifted down and, like, lo and behold, like, a minute before the film started, Mick Jagger came and sat down. Right. And he had his, like, entourage behind him, like, lining the back of the cinema. And it was really distracting. So, like, Inception's not, like, like a hilarious film. <laughs> no, famously, not uh, so much. Yeah. Uh, but there are a couple of jokes in it. And, like, Mick Jagger's got just a really distinctive laugh. Mm. Like, you could just hear his voice, you know, when you... It's really, you know, and so... You know, I was watching this film, kind of having my mind blown, but also like ten percent of my brain was definitely distracted by like Mick Jagger for the whole thing. And he rushed out at the end, and we went over to his seat and we stole all his sweets. Um, <laughs> wow! So like... I ate I ate Mick Jagger's crunchy bits or whatever <laughs> they're called. <laughs> That's good. When we launch the Patreon, Matthew, we can um, put out a badge that says "I ate Mick Jagger's crunchy bits." That's um, <laughs> yeah. That could be a thing. Yeah, I just uh, I can sort of imagine, you know, Tom Hardy going, "You mustn't be afraid to dream a little bigger, darling." And then Mick Jagger going, "Ah ha ha!" or whatever he does. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah, it sort of sounds like he's in yeah. the middle of you know a concert or something. Um, yeah, well, I guess it's like seeing your mates on, like when you see Michael Caine, like you're going to have a bit more affection for him because you're like, "Oh, it's my mate, Michael Caine." Uh, yeah, ha ha ha. You know. <laughs> Like, I'd laugh if I saw you in Inception doing anything. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, I'd be like, oh, my God, it's Sam. <laughs> yeah, I suppose so, yeah. I mean, that Michael Caine's role in that film is preposterous. Isn't he, like, uh, in America as a dream uh, logic professor or whatever it is that... Um... <laughs> mm. <laughs> teaching Elliot Page, so yeah, it was a that was that was like the big thing, and then yeah, um, I started watching a lot of Justified after it was actually quite a good accompaniment to Red Dead Redemption as well because it had sort of like oh, Western yeah. vibes. So um, and uh, you know, John Marston's a little bit Timothy Oliphant ish. You imagine he was probably one of the many influences on that character. Um, mm. So yeah, yeah, and um, yeah, that was kind of what was going on, Matthew. But um, I was curious about trips. Did you do anything fun trips this year? I had a couple yeah. of ones, but um, what about you? Yeah, I, I got to go to Tokyo. This this was the year of the Dragon Quest trip. Oh yeah, um, where I interviewed the um, all the developers with their massive piles of cigarette ash, <laughs> which put me at ease. We talked about that on the interviews episode. You should go back and listen to that. Mm, great story. This was such a lucky trip because it was an official Nintendo trip, and they were on a deadline, so none of their guys could go. Oh, what a pisser. I mean, <laughs> great for me. I, uh, you know, this was just, it was like, you get to go and just have like, oh, I mean, we were there for almost a week. It was just the purest luxury because this is, this is Nintendo, like riding high things haven't kind of gone, gone a bit 3DS for them yet. But yeah, this trip was, yeah, all this time in Tokyo, we, you know, we did a tour of all the Dragon Quest sort of hotspots. We went to a, a bar which was a Dragon Quest themed tavern which meant they played the Dragon Quest Tavern music, which is an earworm to end all earworms, <laughs> and they played it solidly for four hours while we ate foods which were roughly based on Dragon Quest monsters. So I ate some jellyfish for a blue slime. Nice. Um, while being hammered with this music, felt a bit like some kind of torture, to be honest. <laughs> um, but it made for like a good feature. So That's really cool. I, I had a couple this year. I went to... X10 in San Francisco. I told this story on the uh, Maximum Power Up podcast episode that we went on, but um, this felt like a significant moment to me because it was Microsoft's own kind of like, not E3 scale event, but a a big-ish media event where they booked a venue in San Francisco and then showed off all of their upcoming games. And there they had Fable 3, Halo Reach, Crackdown 2, uh, Dead Rising 2, 
they had like the perfect dark remaster there. It was basically every big Microsoft game or series was there. Like, you know, you had your Peter Molyneux there, Sam Lake, people like that. And it felt really significant in retrospect as like the last moment where Microsoft was super, super hardcore because mm. this is obviously the year of Connect. So um, after this, things turned a little bit sour for a few years. They still put out some good games, but obviously Microsoft's been on a hell of a run in the episodes that we've been covering. Um, you know, these years, 2006, 7, 8, 9, they are just, Microsoft is unbelievable, on an unbelievable run. And mm. obviously we know that this path leads to, you know, them basically having to completely reset things, um, you know, ab- about five or six years down the line. So, yeah, it's um, it felt like a it felt like a big moment. It was definitely a fun trip. It was definitely cool to interview, like, you know, Bungie on the last Halo game it, w- it would make. And, you know, Sam Lake, it was the first time I'd seen him in person. There's a novel aspect to seeing Sam Lake in person. As um, a Max Payne <laughs> fan, that you just can't, you I can't hope you didn't ask him to do the face. Well, I feel like he's spent his whole life been asked to do the face, but he just looks super cool. <laughs> he was even wearing like a Max Payne leather jacket, and I just thought, oh, he was leaning into it. Yeah, I mean, you would, right, if you were Max Payne, like, uh, yeah, famously. <laughs> so yeah, that was um, that was an uh, that was an awesome trip for sure. Incidentally, Matthew, did you see the guy on Real Muck who called us um, games gammons <laughs> for talking about? <laughs> magazine anecdotes did you see that yeah you linked to it because people had written some really nice stuff about the podcast i was like oh that's so nice it's really great like people are digging this behind it yeah um, and then it was just like an arrow to the heart <laughs> <laughs> that was really i read it and i was like it, it was like oh tell it's like you know old boars down the pub telling magazine anecdotes and i was there thinking oh. you do you do know the name of the podcast is the back page right i mean it's right there i thought yeah I, I, apologies for inconveniencing you with my free podcast but um <laughs> <laughs> but everyone else oh. was really nice in that thread. But it did um, it did make me slightly self-conscious about coming on and telling stories. It's like, well, no, that is kind of like definitely part of the, the game. Yeah, the podcast I would say that's one of the core pillars of this <laughs> podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, I wondered if you'd seen that. Because um, I thought, I've been called a gammon at the age of 33. That's like the most personal possible insult for someone who's like liberal. And, um, <laughs> and in, in, in the sphere of games... You know, are we the like? Does that you know maybe we do qualify? We are the gammons of a relatively progressive space. I don't, know. <laughs> I don't think so. I'm pretty progressive. I um, <laughs> but you know, I could handle a bit of criticism. I've just been looking at some of the um, the uh, stuff that the Twitch um, uh, streamers have been protesting against. The hate raids are just so so awful. So to be called a yeah. gammon is really like pretty small fry by comparison. Yeah, and, and we we appreciate anyone who listens to it. You know, you're obviously entitled to have any opinion on this podcast. But thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, back to a rambling bullshit mag story from 11 years ago. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I, when I moved on to sci-fi now, there was like a phenomenon in magazines where I don't know if it still happens because we're not really in the age of trips anymore because of the pandemic, but they would basically, if you were in quote-unquote mainstream press, as in you weren't covering video games sort of as your main focus, they would often fly you out for quite fancy trips for like minimal coverage. There'd be a guy who's like, oh, I'm I'm just here from a film magazine. I'm only here to write a paragraph on like a four-day trip. And you're like, well, right, yeah. okay, that sounds like, you know, basically a holiday. But I had one of those for Star Wars The Force Unleashed 2, and I got taken to Skywalker Ranch, which was really cool. Um, I'd been to the uh, Lucasfilm before, the Digital Letterman Center in San Francisco, which is lovely. Has the um, famous Yoda statue outside and loads of cool props and stuff. But Skywalker mm. Ranch felt like a, a much bigger deal. Uh, basically, though, it it didn't really amount to much. There was um, 
it, it was kind of novel to go there, but it's like a, a, a long, flat, kind of hot, sort of like dry farm type area with, you know, like a Skywalker Sound recording studio built into it in Marin County. Not, not our natural habitat. <laughs> no, exactly. And um, I was just like absolutely sweltering. And their big kind of plan for the day was to basically have all the press wield these toy lightsabers in front of the lake outside Skywalker Ranch while a ventriloquist dressed as Obi-Wan Kenobi with a dummy of Yoda on his arm taught people uh, Jedi stuff and Lucasfilm were going to film this and put it out as a promo item and I was probably at the peak of my like I won't just sell out for any old shit (laughs) attitude Um, you know these days I might just be quietly compliant even though I hate it but basically I just refused to participate and went and sat in the shade while this went on and it was a little bit like um I don't know, maybe I'm sort of like killing the buzz of the uh, event slightly. But I just thought, I can't be used, I cannot see myself being used as like a uh, someone, like a bit of promo material, swinging a toy lightsaber to, I don't know, in, in front of this like dude just to sell like a bad Star Wars game. I just like, I thought, what if it goes viral and my life is this now? <laughs> what if I become the new Star Wars kid? become the new Star Wars kid? Exactly. You're Star Wars man. <laughs> exactly, yeah. I thought it was a really flawed idea. And to be honest, like... The thing is... Them getting footage of someone throwing a wobbly and going off and sitting under a tree <laughs> is more likely to go viral. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The thing is, it was like, it was still a kind of cool trip because just the, 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 the actually just being there, you're like, I'm so close to like the heart of being heart of Star Wars right now. And it's obviously in the pre Disney days. I feel like Disney will probably never do this stuff, but Lucasfilm were a bit more, I don't know, autonomous or whatever. But um, mm. basically, yeah, that was like a, a big sort of highlight. We couldn't go in the cool house that had all the props in it, though, because he was meeting with writers for that TV show that never came out, Underworld, I think it was called, um, of which apparently 100 episodes were written. During that meeting, George Lucas had looked out the window and saw you getting cross about not wanting to use a light. (laughs) Get that man off my fucking ranch right now. He's like, that guy's got integrity. (laughs) Let's (laughs) get him in our writer's room. (laughs) Yeah. Would you like to write Rogue One, son? Like, uh, I like the cut of your jib. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's a shame because the house is where all the cool stuff is. Like the um, when uh, Gareth Edwards made Rogue One and he found those footage of the X-wing pilots in A New Hope that was unused and cut it into the film. That was the house where it was, and like Indiana Jones whip oh. was in there and stuff. So all I did, Matthew, was complain in the sun. That's me in Skywalker Ranch. <laughs> I also um, met the guy who played Star Killer, um, uh, Sam Witwer, who was also in Days oh, yeah. Gone. Uh, they asked me if I wanted a photo with him, and like I just thought I don't want to be photographed with a man who's this much more handsome than me, and I just sort of politely <laughs> declined. I just sort of went, I'm, 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 "I'm all right, thanks. That's all right. I'll, I'll just leave it this time." Uh, so that was me um, with the Force Unleashed two trip, Matthew. Do you have any more trip stories, or should we get into? Um... No, that was that was basically. I mean, that was just such a you know, it was such a mammoth thing. I was so lucky to to you know go to Tokyo and get to do all that. I I remember when we were on that show on that Tokyo trip, there was this bar in Roppongi where if you ring this bell, you basically buy everyone in the bar a drink. And someone from Nintendo went a bit loopy with this bell and just kept ringing it. And and like by the end of the night, the receipt they had was like (laughs) twice the length of their body. It was like meters and meters of receipt. That's (laughs) and I I remember just thinking like. You've probably like that's you know that's feasibly like a couple of issues of Endgamer's budget right there on that receipt. 
they were just wild. They yeah. Were, they were, like, flying high, and they flew us out, like, business class and everything. It was just crazy times, but Again, good I, times. I'm sure that uh, sales of Dragon Quest Nine on DS in the UK broke even on that trip. Yeah. <laughs> but that's, that sounds like a lot of fun. That's cool. Did the uh, Dragon Quest devs go with you? I'm guessing not. No, we only saw, like, the, the way they were treated was just so... You know, best. You know, they're such legendary figures that it was just, it was a super controlled environment. Like there would be no weirdness or awkwardness for them, and that was clearly like the focus of the trip was just making sure that that like one twenty minute conversation went smoothly. You can just sometimes tell when someone's around that they're important, and they were. So yeah, fair enough. I wonder if uh, Yuji Hori's forgiven me being uh, late for my Gamescom interview in 2017 yet. I'll um, I'll give I'll give that some more thought. So Matthew, <laughs> let's take a break there. Then we'll come back with a pretty short section on the lay of the land for this year before we get into games. Let's do it. Welcome back to the podcast. So, as people have listened to these um, this series of uh, episodes that, that we've done have uh, probably noticed by now, we always do something on what's going on in the industry at this point, just to give a bit of context for the games we're discussing. Uh, this year, I, I think we can be a lot shorter, because it's not very interesting. I watched the Sony and Microsoft E3 conferences from this year, and I thought they were both complete duds, to be honest. And mm. my, uh, Nintendo, weirdly, had a good E3 conference, so... Matthew, maybe we should start there. Like, um, what's your memory of a Nintendo E3 this year? The big exciting thing is um, you get 3DS shown off for the first time. The pitch of 3DS is so wild and exciting. It's kind of a perfect E3 reveal in a way because it's this 3D without glasses. What a, you know? What an interesting pitch compared to just what everyone else had. I think this was the year with the slightly wonky. Skyward Sword demo, where the controller kept disconnecting, and you could just sort of sense Miyamoto getting cross uh, on stage, but trying to put a brave face on it. So, like, as a technical event, maybe a bit shaky, but in terms of what they actually had, and the fact that it was so kind of focused on, on the, you know, quite traditional, sort of hardcore Nintendo fans, yeah, I mean, this was a great year. I always get a little confused with this E3, because they did this event in the uk a really good event for mario galaxy 2 and metroid other m hmm. and i sometimes i get i think i get a, the two of them sort of mixed together a little bit in my head because mario galaxy came out just before e3 so i know that wouldn't have been there Th- this year they were just really going for it and like hosting big events they had great games they were super confident in you know it was just a really exciting like version of nintendo mm. kind of all just sort of blurs into a, a big old mix so i'm looking at the list of stuff they had at e3 and there's quite a lot of stuff that i'm not actually that bothered about <laughs> <laughs> yeah epic mickey it's, for example epic mickey golden eye Wii. oh yeah in my notes i wrote grainy as fuck golden eye Wii. yeah this was like quite critically acclaimed GoldenEye Wii got an eight in Edge. Yeah, I mean that's that's quite impressive. Like we gave we gave it eighty. I didn't I didn't review it. Like, I, it's not it's not in my list. I will say, and it's not in my list of like almost <laughs> as well. So I yeah. guess I can quickly talk about it here. That was such a strange pitch for a game. It's like it's GoldenEye, but it's got Daniel Craig in it. Yeah, <laughs> like 
a really strange bit of revisionist history because the tone of Goldeneye, the flavour of that Bond, is so different to what Daniel Craig's Bond was about. Yeah. Like, the idea that you could just replace him wholesale like that. Like, I'm surprised that they were even allowed to do it, really. Yeah, it's a, a strange time. And you wonder if, like, this this kind of couple of games that comes out of this era of uh, Goldeneye and Bloodstone kind of, like, maybe triggers there being a long pause with Bond and thinking, like, oh, what is the best way we use this? That results in IO Interactive eventually getting it. But, I don't mm. know, maybe it starts here. Because I, I didn't get this. This was, like, a Call of Duty-style shooter with james bond in it you know all of activision's bond games are a bit like this but you know it's a it's a cold war era bond story Goldeneye is you know much hornier and weirder than some of daniel than daniel craig's films and yeah but maybe it's something you say you said on many episodes matthew about how when the Wii gets shown a little bit of love maybe yeah. Craig's give it a bit of a pass you know but that's it yeah i just don't remember having much affection for this even though like they did show it a lot of love I and mean, they threw a lot of money at this very very shiny i think like we didn't have much of a relationship with it because activision just didn't do anything with us ever right so i think like the only time we ever covered this was the review where they did like a cover with o&m and stuff like we just didn't have you know this was the period of activision and call of duty being so big that they're kind of not untouchable but they're you know they can keep their distance and it's you know and still be absolutely fine mm. that didn't really work for them on we i don't think this was a big success I'm not saying Endgamer would have turned that story around. <laughs> uh, you know, our 8,000 readers or whatever it was wouldn't have uh, made much of a dent. Um, but yeah, it, it kind of had the shape of GoldenEye. Like, it had the weird objective system where different difficulties have different, like, more objectives the harder it gets, which I always loved about GoldenEye. But fundamentally, the, there were too many, like, scripted sequences and the, the, the gunplay was very Call of Duty, very target gallery. Didn't have any of the character or charm. Mm. Had quite a big multiplayer suite, which people were, were sort of wild for, but I don't know. Who was playing multiplayer on the Wii? Who was doing oh, that? Like, yeah, this is the thing. It, it never really worked like that. I yeah. just felt like that age had kind of been and gone a bit so yeah strange one for them to get behind mm. but um you know donkey kong country returns as well but we might talk about that later definitely an exciting year like we'd had a few years of uh, you know you you got to dread e3 because <laughs> it meant you know the people on xbox world cackling at us for another nintendo dreadful conference right, yeah. while they had like they'd resurrected all the Beatles to be on stage or something wild, you know? <laughs> well, who's laughing now, Matthew? Because at E3 2010, it, this is where Microsoft starts to go off the deep end a bit. I mean, this is really subjective. Uh, maybe people out there have different takes on on Kinect and PlayStation Move, which are both dominant at this E3 for Microsoft and Sony. But in retrospect, we surely have to see these as a failure. I mean, I know Kinect sold well, for sure. And like in the short term, it seemed like it was a success. Then when you get to... The Xbox One era, they make it mandatory and they bundle it in and suddenly the world doesn't want it anymore. And, you know, motion control play seems like a fad and the, the players that they're chasing at the time, you know, uh, the publishers felt very comfortable using words like casual gamers, which, you know, now we kind of see as more of a gatekeeping term, really, and not that appealing to use. But mm. at the time, they're just cynically chasing it, it feels like. They're just trying to catch up with the success of the Wii even though they were successful in their own right. So Microsoft starts well at the C3. It's got Gears 3, Fable 3, Hideo Kojima's on stage to show off the um, Revengeance, the very short uh, video they made for that. 
and um, Halo Reach is there as well. Then it starts to get a bit weird that there's um, a really long segment with some ESPN hosts that was like um, critically misjudged. Like for the <laughs> you know, it's a worldwide audience watching E3 at this point. I remember watching the conferences in full around this time, and it really feels like Microsoft is going, "Here's your thing. You've had your fun. Now here's our thing." And so. Kudo Sonoda comes out, kind of like has a sort of Bono aesthetic. I, I think he might wear glasses because of some kind of like aversion to light when he's in on stage, and I completely understand that. But <laughs> it seems right. like an affectation in um, when you're an executive. It just does. And mm. he talks up, um, this is the future of entertainment kind of like vibes. And then it cuts to a little girl talking to a tiger in Connectimals. And like, Again, the the pitch of it is completely fine. It is completely fine for you to make a game where like children can interact with animals. That's like a, a perfectly nice premise for a game. But Microsoft's positioning of it as like the future of entertainment was just I just really hated it. I thought it was just really maybe it's just the marketing, but it was just quite sour. And like it felt like it was replacing something that existed before that was good. And I think that's why it ends up seeming egregious in retrospect. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, I th- I think so. You know, they've done such a great job with just quite traditional kind of games thinking, and there's, like, no shame in that. I guess maybe they felt like they'd kind of hit the limit on that, or they were, they'd kind of maxed it out, and they, you know, everyone wanted a bit of, like, what Nintendo was doing in terms of just reaching new people. But mm. it's, it's you know, it's just very, very difficult to kind of force that shift, and it was so obvious that they were trying to force it. They were just so heavy-handed with it from the off. Yeah. You know, it was kind of like, it's this now, rather than, oh, and this. Or, you know, or, you know, we got all this great stuff, and here's something else we're, we're kind of testing, or here's something else that you might be into, and let's see if it grows. Let's see if there is interest. It's like, this is the future. And it's just a vision that is so, like, starkly different from what was in that first half of the show. <laughs> Yeah, it's just super. You know, you can see the break happen in real time. Like that is the moment. There is like a sort of you know before and after moment mm. um, there. And the rea- I don't think the reaction was ever good. I, and they stuck to their guns on this so so stubbornly. Yeah. You know, it, this is the thinking that basically derails Xbox One. You know, there is an all-in-one. It's an all-in-one entertainment system rather than a games console. It's just they're just it doesn't. I don't know why they stuck to it. It never felt like anyone bought into it. Yeah, I saw. Yeah, I didn't really get it either. And it's sort of like in retrospect, kind of feels like you know. Obviously, we know it throws Rare into this quite dark age. We know it kind of seems to kill Fable as a series for a long, long time. It was poor short-term thinking. The thing I never understood about this, Matthew is they were chasing the quote-unquote success of the Wii, right? But the Mm. PS2 outsold the Wii, and the PS2 was a traditional games console. It had a DVD Mm. player built in. That was a massive part of why it sold so well. But what they were chasing was just, I don't know, it was like illusory. It was like they had to tell their shareholders, oh, there's this big thing, there's this big lot of like 30 million people we can reach who we're not reaching right now, and so we're going Mm. after them. These two conferences are just a, a complete bummer to watch, I would say. So Sony... I, I, don't, I must admit, I don't remember Sony's like at all. I, I didn't have much interest in PlayStation at this time, so mm. I wasn't really ever following them that closely. Yeah, they, they do it the other way around. They start with the PS Move stuff. And I forgot Sony was going massive on 3D at the time, which was a complete more of a dud than Kinect, I would say. But um, 
obviously they were uh, this is a time where sony their whole strategy was like well the console's just one thing in your home but we've got all these other things that we sell whereas now it feels like playstation exists at the center of their business and everything else kind of orbits it so their thinking here was we'll do ps move we'll do um 3d and we'll show people how to get more out of this console that's been around for a few years now they were flying high because the um ps3 uh sort of like redo they did the previous year was, was actually selling pretty well it actually did you know finally um pick up a bit of momentum versus xbox to ps3 so mm. that was fine but yeah ps move was just really like lukewarm i mean you can at least say about connect it's like an all-in-one thing it's like you know impressive on at first glance and whereas ps move was like you've got a camera you've got two controllers and it's just it's not as elegant a thing and not as exciting so there was that but um sony tried to bring a bit of heat by having gabe newell on stage to show off portal 2 gabe newell had famously slammed the ps3 a few years before so this seemed like a big uh deal um and sony were also big on this marketing campaign around fictional executive kevin butler do you remember that yeah 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 whereas it was a very of its time kind of thing but people seem to quite dig it and they had him come on stage and he does bring it to life a little bit but then in terms of actual games they have infamous 2 killzone 3 um, the PSP is still limping on. It gets a new God of War game, uh, Ghost of Sparta. Both those games were among the best on the PSP. Is, are there less appetising names for games than Infamous 2 and Killzone 3? <laughs> Killzone 3 is like a parody of a video game title. That's what an evil executive invents in like a crap, you know, in in the film Toys. You know? <laughs> yeah, or Free Guy, or like, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah. Or like. Killzone uh, 3. It's like. Killzone. Fucking yikes. It's like that uh, Spike Lee's kind of withering take on GTA in um, Inside Man. You know that? <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, he yeah. just. He, yeah. I, I, like, I get it, Spike. You like roll your eyes at it, but you roll your eyes at that too. Yeah. Like, imagine being a passionate Killzone fan. Yeah. I think that it's, it was always a weird sell kill zone, just never as exciting as Halo, even though it, the second and third games were pretty good. But um, yeah, so at this point, it feels like Sony isn't going to have a proper comeback this generation, but it has got a couple of years of good games still to come. So um, yeah, Twisted Metal was the other big thing they revealed this year, but Ugh. I feel like that's a real kind of like American players love that series more yeah. than European players. I'm not sure why that is, but yeah. So Matthew, that's pretty much the lay of the land. Connect uh, launches in November. PS Move comes in September. On live launches, who cares? Um, but, you know, it was just not that exciting a year for industry stuff. But the games, they were fucking fantastic. So, shall we take a short break, come back, and get into our top tens? Let's do it. Welcome back, Matthew. So, shall we get into the top ten? Let's do it. Okay, do you want to go first and I'll go second? And usual rules apply of whoever's got the game higher in their list. We'll talk about it when we get to um, their entry on the list. Sounds good? Yeah. Cool. Uh, So, I'm going to kick off with one of the more obscure ones, but it's a big heart choice. It's also a a really underrated game. I'm going to kick off with Trauma Team on the Wii. Mm. Came up on a previous episode, right? Yeah, we've we've mentioned it before. You were definitely joked about it. I mean, this was this the last trauma trauma center game they made. Um, it, it didn't get released in the UK, um, so it's a bit of an a bit of an annoying one to track down and play because you either need a US Wii or, well, you can maybe work out some other scheme for yourself. 
um, it, it's uh, yeah the last last trauma center game, and my god. It is the ultimate Trauma Center game. It has all the stuff you love about Trauma Center in that it is an arcade surgery game, but that is just one-sixth of the game. So what, what was the whole Trauma Center deal is now one discipline in a game which is about loads of medical disciplines. So it's, 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 it's wildly overstuffed. It's got six story campaigns, each of these different characters all fully realized they're all respectively shorter than a single trauma center game, I will add. But at this point, I felt like they'd examined the surgery part of the game so much that it made sense to kind of uh, to branch off. So as well as surgery, uh, you had first responder, which was like super fast, really quick kind of edge of your seat, you know, early, well, f- your first response to big crimes, uh, accidents. There was diagnosis, which was a, like a visual novel section, which is a bit like house where you had to work out what was wrong with people. There was a forensic uh, section where you used... You were basically investigating crimes as this sort of uh, forensic specialist. There was an endoscopic surgeon, which was all about guiding cameras up people's bottoms and things. That's the only thing I remember from when we last (laughs) talked about it. Yeah, I I should add, this isn't photorealistic. (laughs) You know, it makes the inside of the guts look like a wonderland it's all like purple it looks like a bouncy castle in there that's quite fun uh there's like a bone specialist which is like drilling pit and hammering pins into bones in a kind of steady hand con uh sort of challenge and there was that is six yeah those are the six yeah mm-hmm. so th- yeah all, all these um different styles like you could play the campaigns individually or you could like mix and match them into like chronological order because they all kind of intertwined and told this bigger story this was just i love it when people double down and just go wild on something really niche Mm. and the idea of like we are just gonna make six trauma center games at once it's a bit like the resident evil five of trauma centers (laughs) Uh, the resident evil six so right 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 right, of trauma centers it's just so much stuff why they didn't release this in the uk i have no idea it was it's so classy so much fun one of the great unplayed wii games i think total heart choice but honestly it's it's fab but should they bring it back from the dead matthew yeah absolutely i I think people would really dig this uh i think it would work brilliantly on on switch as well just because you could play the kind of touchscreen parts of it and you know it used motion controls a lot but the you know the joy cons have got a lot of that jazz in them too so why not um Oh, I'd love for it to come back. It's really, really good. It's also just because it's the same artists who do like the Persona games. Mm. So it feels like it's set in the same world because all the character art is so similar. So you can sort of imagine that like, if you get seriously bashed up in Persona, you might end up in this game with a camera <laughs> up your bum. <laughs> yeah, well, an un- unfortunate fate for Ryuji there. But uh, <laughs> yeah, um, that's um, that's cool. Uh, is the, um, are the uh, sort of like housey visual novel bits well written? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, they're probably the least interesting bit right right, right. you're like interviewing people and i think you have to pick through like what's salient and what isn't and it's not it's not that complicated you know if someone comes in and they go like you know my favorite color is purple and also i shat blood um (laughs) like it's obviously that bit (laughs) and it is kind of as binary as that (laughs) oh dear I think I already made the uh, house joke about every case's lupus um, in the previous episode. So. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit more varied than that. Because it is an Atlas game, there's like these mad fictional viruses. Like in Trauma Center, it was guilt, which was this like 
bioterrorist kind of thing that had been bred in a lab to kind of it's actually a little bit resident evil thinking right. about it so, yeah they're really silly games but um it's just got great great energy to it yeah and for some reason during our conversation there matthew i googled the word trauma and um i just read the <laughs> definition of trauma <laughs> i think that's completely thrown me off <laughs> that was like really great research by me there uh, <laughs> have i got trauma into Google. yeah let's think mm, i ate some mini cheddars last night and i shat blood mm, is oh this... well hang on let me <laughs> oh yeah i think the important thing is the mini cheddars was like game over it was it was the shitty stool that you needed to focus on i'm like oh damn it <laughs> Oh, amazing. There you go. You could never have made it as a doctor, a real Dr. Matthew. Yeah. That's a great choice, though, because then it already suggests that we're going to have uh, some big variants between our games in this list, which is exciting. So, my number 10, then, Matthew, is Final Fantasy Thirteen. Oh, okay. I'm guessing this didn't make your list, right? It didn't. It, it was on my long list of, like, oh, these were interesting. <laughs> yeah, I've got quite a few of those in my honourable mentions. But... Uh, this was competing with several other games for like the one heart pick of the list, like with without as much of a head pick. So Final Fantasy Thirteen was famously sort of reviled by some corners of the fan base because it is a linear game. You're mostly wandering down very pretty corridors. There are no towns where you can go and talk to uh, different characters and stuff. So it's very streamlined down to like combat and then walking down a tunnel, having story presented to you. Uh, progression systems and so on and so forth and while that you do reach a point where it opens up slightly you get these different bounties to do and there's like a couple of like biggish areas to explore which do look spectacular it never really truly opens up so it remains a contentious entry i feel like over time people have softened to it a little bit i think a lot of what final fantasy 7 remake is is in this game it's a, some of the same people and mm. it's a really really good combat system and progression system combined when you get deeper into the game the problem is it makes you wait a quite a long time to like take the training wheels off and let you experiment with its different class systems this whole mm. thing is about basically building um sort of like pre-loaded sort of like sets of classes for your characters let's say like you know you, you put, you'll have two majors and then like a, a sort of like a warrior like a physical attack character that's like one but then you have another one that's like um saboteur which is designed to you know like um put status effects on the enemies and synergist which is designed to like boost your different characters um stats and stuff like that along with like a, a white mage to try and like um heal your party and you can switch between them on the fly at any time so it gives you a massive amount of like tactical variety the problem mm -hmm. is you probably have it's probably 25 hours until the game like gives you full control of that system and you feel like you're mm. actually making the most of it so it's quite sort of flawed in that respect but a lot of what i love about final fantasy comes down to like the feel of the thing in terms of like how it sounds and looks what the world is like i don't think this has got the best characters in the series i think some of them are very very hard to like i quite i do i don't mind um lightning the main character i think she's um she's fine she's basically just cloud it's the same archetype but yeah i think that the music and setting are just like classic final fantasy to me they kind of fit the lineage of like by classic i mean golden age seven eight ten this feels like of a piece with them in a way that 12 didn't for example 
Um, mm. You know, 12, we talked about in this podcast, very classy game, but has a very different feeling. Doesn't really feel like those kind of Final Fantasies. I guess like the uh, Tetsuya Nomura character design is um, defining the feel to some extent. But it's also things like the color palette and um, and the, just the, the melodramatic music just feels like of a piece with those, those Final Fantasy games that I loved. And that had a powerful effect on me at the time. What did you make of this mm. one, Matthew? Yeah, I mean, I will say it's a game I've never finished. I think it came with just a huge amount of baggage and a huge amount of expectation. I think coming to it later, like coming back to it later, we started replaying it like a year, a couple of years ago. And I think you're right, the kind of the actual production values, like the visual style and the music and the world of it, it feels it feels very Final Fantasy. And I also think it's it's like the linearity of it is somewhat overstated in respect to the entire series because... Mm. We we replayed ten, and I'm sure we've said this on this pod as well. Like that felt that's very similar. That that is just a long path. I mean, it has maybe more interesting hubs along the way, but it's an, you know it's just a path with some very pretty background art, which basically this is too. Characters hard to get into. I just, voice acting on this never really did it for me. I think. Hmm. Um, I wonder if playing in Japanese might help. Oh, maybe. Um, might t- take the edge of that i never really bought into the, the american voices um yeah combat system i i think you're just bang on with this one really it's 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 way more interesting than the angry internet blog posts yeah kind of would suggest it is and maybe given like where final fantasy went after this or what's happened since then it can be really reevaluated as maybe not such a disaster yeah i love the combat it's great it's almost it's 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 obviously very different to the gambit system in 12 but it's got a bit of that kind of it's it's almost like an arcade version of that Mm. it's like a slightly more simplified fast moving kind of sort of altering these other moving parts in the kind of battle equation i thought it's 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 cool it holds up it holds up well yeah, I think so. I understand that the um, there's some magic in the um, Xbox 360 version backwards compatible with um, more recent Xbox hardware with this. It's apparently a phenomenal way to play it. So um, that's oh, cool. Right. I it think just came out Game Pass. To, yeah, Game Pass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Just rolled out on Game Pass, so um, a good time to play it and re-examine it. Like I say, it takes a long time to get going. That's like the big obstacle with this game. But mm. for me at the time, I just, I just loved it. I really... Yeah, I, I, I just this was kind of what I wanted. I just wanted a Final Fantasy game that audio visually reminded me of the ones I really loved. It had mm. been a long time coming. There was a lot, a lot of expectation on this. I think it was announced in two thousand six, shown off in two thousand six. So massive, massive wait. Felt like a defining game of working in um, games media for me. But um, yeah, I still, I still have affection for it years later. I, I probably am due a replay of it to be honest. So, um, what's your number nine, Matthew? Number nine. I've got Bayonetta higher on my list. Then what is your number nine? My number nine is Fable Three. Oh, not on my list. Wow. Okay. Uh, I well, that's um, that's probably an interesting place to start, Matthew. So, how come this didn't make your top ten? So, I, I replayed it recently, and sort of, I don't know if, if it's unfair to say, saw through it more easily. I love Fable. I love the Fable series. I love Albion. I love its tone, its vibe. Um, I love that it isn't just that it basically rejects a lot of rpg thinking and and has a lot of original ideas of how you can approach things um i think for me this stripped back a little too much you know that one of their big things was accessibility and that manifests in fable 3 in a couple of really interesting ways like i love the 
uh, like the physical representation of like menus and things like the weird vault that you go to. I think that's a really cool, interesting idea. I love that it finds a lot of visual metaphors for kind of traditional like video game kind of mechanics like leveling up and things that's really interesting Mm. um but as an actual like kind of like combat character building character behavior experiment it's a little too it's a little simpler than fable 2 also the game hinges on this it's kind of got this big kind of two act structure to it and i feel like a lot of what it does is to sort of set up these big difficult moral decisions in part two and i feel like the whole game is just sort of like sort of enslaved to these these couple of decisions and they didn't land for me in a big enough way to make that worthwhile i feel like it's all set up and and not enough payoff yeah i think that's all fair enough and you are operating with more recent experience of it than me i played it I think I played this in 2015 or 2014, so okay. a, fair, a fair while ago. One, I thought it was technically a better experience than Fable 2 was, like a less blurry. Fable 2 is super blurry. Um, yeah. But I think that I also I also really love the um, the king being Michael Fassbender. I thought he was terrific <laughs> in, that, in that role. I thought he was a real kind of like awful bastard, like really kind of poisonous yeah, yeah. figure. I think that all of that is fair. Like it does hit fast forward when you get to the actual ruling part, obviously, and the logic of it is quite twisted. You know, basically it comes down to money, essentially, doesn't it, really? It's not... Um... Well, it's, it's, it's a really strange game where you basically... Like the best outcome is you have to buy every property and become the ultimate landlord. Yeah. This is a game where a landlord saves the universe, which <laughs> yeah. in this day and age Dated. just doesn't land as well. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I, and I don't actually reject that criticism. I did think this felt rushed, not in the sense that the devs did a bad job, but it was obviously made in two years, very, very mm. fast for a Fable game. I, but I still really love the um, the setting. I love that they did the kind of like um, industrial revolution the setting mm. and sort of take on the Fable universe. I really like that. I didn't think it was... Uh, I could see like what they were going for. Molin, you made a big deal about how Fable 2 had too many progression systems. You know, a normal person couldn't pick it up and I totally understand it and all this stuff. But it's true it loses a little bit of magic in that. But I suppose just as a kind of like a, still a mood piece for the very specific feeling of Fable mm. and to have a slightly different uh, visual twist on that universe, it was nice to step back into it, even if it's a more limited game. So yeah, mm. I debated this one, uh, Matthew. There's... um. Uh, you know, a certain game directed by David Cage that was um, jostling for a slot in these lower parts of my list, but um, lost right. out. Ultimately, <laughs> lost out. So, um, yeah, Fable Three ended up being one that's like, I guess, kind of a hard choice. But I don't know, uh, not I, a total I think it's fi- Like, uh, yeah, I, I probably sound more down on it than I am. Like, it, it's definitely it was in my twenty that I chopped down to ten. Mm, yeah, exactly. Um, I just think, yeah, that that recent experience. I don't know. I just saw it in a slightly harsher light. I think, but. Um, yeah. I just, I don't know. I still, I still prefer Fable 2. Yeah, completely yeah. fair. And so do I. Absolutely do as well. So, um, yeah. But it's just a shame that this is kind of the end of the road for um, Fable already. And it's like, we've barely gotten started. What a shame. But, yeah. So what's your uh, number eight, Matthew? My number eight is Professor Layton and the Lost Future. Okay. That's uh, not on my list. So go ahead. Yeah. I mean, Professor Layton has appeared, I think, twice on my lists. I think we, it appeared in the previous two. I'm a big fan of this series, uh, Level 5's sort of puzzle meets mystery story where the mystery story is sort of broken up with lots of little logic puzzles which you solve. Um, This is, like, not a particularly, like, interesting evolution of this series in that they just got a bit better at making them with each one. Like, the puzzles got a bit slicker. They ironed out 
what few problems they had, which was often slightly ambiguous wording of the puzzles themselves, which could throw you off when you were trying to solve them. You know, so a lot of it comes down to like the individual stories of the individual games. Like, do you like them? They're much of a much as they all sort of swim in the, the same kind of like high 80s sort of review score kind of space. Um, this has got a really fun time travel hook in that Professor Layton and his sidekick Luke are visited uh, or, or sent correspondence um, from Luke 10 years in the future and are asked to come and help solve a mystery and so there's this big sort of time travel twist where in this sort of dark future professor layton is now like a mafia boss (laughs) (laughs) Um, and there's all this sort of interesting stuff about professor layton's backstory as well like they're kind of um they're sort of people sort of think of them as two kind of trilogies um, the six late in games so this is the end of the first trilogy um it doesn't like lean massively into what happened before but it definitely pads out the latent character you know who i've said before is just sort of like a sausage in a hat really there's not <laughs> a lot to him an uncooked sausage at that but i love this it ends as they all do with just a monstrously silly twist which i really liked but what what, what i think why this is the best of the entire series is that uh, it also has like a genuinely very affecting ending like there's there's something very poignant happens and the stuff with professor layton's backstory is actually quite nicely handled and um i may even have shed a little tear at the end of it oh. um it's a really yeah just a really sweet version of of, of this setup yeah just a, a really great super polished game from a a very happy period of nintendo history oh great stuff this is um it's really weird how Professor Layton's not really in the culture now, as they say. It's like, yeah, it's just sort of uh, discarded to like CEX shelves. You know, that's kind of where it's yeah, at. Yeah, like the th- just the three DS games just weren't quite as good. Like they, like level five are in a bit of a weird place. At any, you know, they've kind of dropped the ball a little bit, which is so odd because when I was on Mags, they were just level five were just flying like outside of nintendo everyone every game they made was just zipping up the charts they were in japan they were as you know about as successful as you could be and they were flying high and really pumping all that money back into productions they were getting ever more lavish um i i really hope they kind of come back because i think they made some great games and i i I really liked um hino who's the kind of guy who ran it i didn't met him but you know on paper i really liked him and i really liked his sort of vibe and um i've probably said on this pod before that i thought you know i used to think oh he feels like he could have been an iwata successor Mm. because he had the same kind of sort of sort of business savvy but mixed with like creative eye in that he'd made games and had seemed to marry those two skills together brilliantly, but now they're like, you know, what was the last good thing Level 5 made? Nino Kuni 2, I guess? They, yeah, they did make that, didn't they? Yeah. It's weird because I thought there was, this is around the time that White Knight Chronicle came out, which is quite a boring kind of like PS3 RPG. Oh, right, yeah. That should have been good. And I, I never understood why they didn't just become like the open world RPG developer, just because this seems to be the thing that they were kind of like gearing towards with dragon quest 8 for example where mm. you know that that was basically like a, a very beautiful looking open world so 
they could have been like quite a good match for this modern age, but they've always been into doing like loads of different stuff at once. And yeah. they doubled down on the, that Yukai Watch series, which I, I hear the games are okay, but like the I think as an anime, it was like a big flop. Like it lost them. Yeah, a, a bunch it of was, money. It, they they were big into like mass multimedia projects. Yeah, like it, it was always a game, a series, some toy, like. They were trying to Pokemon everything, basically. Yeah, it's just, and that's not very interesting from a game's point of view. So, um, yeah, I don't know. It's tough. But, no, I'm glad to, to hear it kind of emerge on your list. Yeah, um, you I, can reclaim. Leighton won't be appearing again. It's da- it's downhill from here quite dramatically, I think. Until he appears for Phoenix Wright, I assume, in a future episode. Oh, yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah, mm-hmm. that was his big comeback. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, great stuff. So my number eight, Matthew, is Alan Wake. Is that on your list? It isn't on my list was very almost on my list yeah i imagine it would have made the long list as well so obviously this is a remedy game it took years and years to come out it was originally announced as an open world game and i believe uh 2005 i think it was and um, i think it was originally set for ps3 and then it came out on um, xbox microsoft published game so remedy were obviously the creators of um, max Payne. i believe they sold max Payne to rockstar and take two and made a load of money which gave them a long time to figure out what they wanted to do next so they spent that time and money basically building an open world engine and then decided they didn't really want to make an open world in the end. Um, they were kind of more into the guided narrative experience, which is what they're really good at. So they make this horror game that has like um, a light and dark sort of mechanic, sort of like using a torch or different lights to kind of like take protection off of enemies and finishing them off with gunfire. Quite a straightforward mechanic. Hmm. I would say combat is fairly repetitive in Alan Wake. It's probably its biggest uh, sort of downfall. But the most interesting thing about it, of course, is the um, the, the main character is a Stephen King-style author. Writes these kind of horror books and kind of gets trapped in his own sort of story, essentially, uh, which is a very Stephen King sort of premise. And is set in this very Twin Peaks-like sort of location in the Pacific Northwest. So all of that stuff, all of the character stuff, um, really elevates it. And I think that even though the combat is repetitive and you know runs out of steam a little bit you are always you always want to keep going just because it's such a curious and interesting world to be in with mm. such a like a strange main character would you say that's all fair matthew yeah yeah ab- absolutely i thought this uh mechanically i don't know if this game is necessarily like all that yeah I agree. um like it runs out of ideas quite quickly but for its first couple of hours it's such an exciting mix of like narrative interruptions weird characters cinematic set pieces cool action that hasn't got boring yet a great like the first two hours of alan wake are like absolutely brilliant i think yeah and then it's kind of it's still fine but it it, it, i think that's why it didn't make my list is it it doesn't ever quite escalate on the action side of things in the way that it maybe needed to yeah i think that if anything, the um, small spin-off they released afterwards, a small sequel, American uh, Nightmare, I think it was, right. um, that has a lot more going on combat-wise. It's more of a combat game, and it's more mm. more functional as a combat game, uh, better at it. This, I think, like um, what I think helps with Alan Wake is its use of like signature remedy touches. So it's structured like a TV show. You know, it has like um, you know the kind of cliffhangers and and stuff like that. That's how the chapters are divided up, essentially. And they really leaned into that in the marketing. And it's a bit pretentious, but, you know, it, I think it worked because no one else is really doing anything like it. And obviously Remedy is big into, like, um, illusion and sort of... They have their own kind of, like, oddball touches. Like, 
the band Poets of the Fall, who I believe are the lead singer is a friend of Sam Lake's, and that's why Poets of the Fall is so closely associated with Remedies Games, they're in Max Payne 2. They're in this as a fictional band, The Old Gods of Asgard, and um, they create music within the game. But you've got that mixed in there, which gives it a lot of personality, along with the fact that Remedy makes these um, you know, music choices like Roy Orbison, Depeche Mode, that play at the end of the chapters mm. in the in the game. That just gives it such a like flavour that you just didn't get from blockbuster games at the time. And I think that that's why so many kind of critics of my generation get excited about Remedy, because they're just you know, if they can nail the game side of it, they're they're already really good at the the storytelling and like um characterful nature of their games, you know? Mm. How do you feel about the expanded Remedy universe or whatever it is? Well, I mean the rumour is that they're working on I'll make two, right, for Epic Games. Yeah. I think that's I'm perfectly fine with them kind of like revisiting it. I think it could be, um, you know, it's it's really easy to see how a sequel could be better with improved combat and, and such. And like yeah. Control has quite a lot going on combat-wise, like a lot of different... I thought, I thought Control was like, out, outside of Max Payne 1 and 2, like their, their kind of gameplay-wise, their most sort of satisfying thing they'd made. Definitely, yeah. I think they, they just thought really long and hard about how to nail that side of things and not just the story and setting side of things. So, you know, the mm. setting in that game is obviously very... Um, you know, very notable. And I like that they have so much affection for Alan Wake after all these years. You know, he's like, it seemed like this game just sold badly in the wake of, you know, another game that'll be further up my list. It came out at almost exactly the same time. But um, interesting, yeah. it has endured. And I think that comes down to the the writing, the characters and those all of those cool touches, you know? Yeah, I would like to see what an, a more open world version of a Remedy game looks like. You know, I, I, I quite like the... I think they could take quite a good swing at the... the is it the wide linear that they call it the kind of um, you know the almost like the sort of uncharted or naughty dog kind of sort of sandbox stuff where they have like big levels where you sort of discover story at your own pace mm. i think that's something i think remedy could do something really interesting with because they basically make quite quite beautiful corridors you know yeah. up until kind of control you know it's 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 a really linear path through a level which kind of looks like it should be more open but the idea of driving around that environment and discovering interesting things could be could be quite cool. Yeah, so. I think so. I think one thing I do like about this game is that the way they used... I think they told me this in the interview at the time, was um, the way they used their open-world tech was they could show you an enemy who's miles away, who you know you'll encounter in like two minutes, and there's kind of like the build-up to that. Mm. Like if the camera would zoom in and then cut back again and that was all designed because the draw distance for an open world was you know necessary that the game could actually do that but instead they used it for like you know setting up an encounter and making things more tense that kind of technique Um, that's interesting yeah yeah it's interesting i think it does work a few times in this game but i I agree with you i mean you know i i I love the games remedy makes and um it sounds like they're working on quite a lot of stuff so uh we'll Mm. we'll see how it pans out but um yeah so what's your number seven matthew this one, I think, it, I'm looking at it, I'm like, well, this is actually too low. Um, it's Mass Effect 2. <laughs> yep, that's higher on my list. Probably no yeah, surprise. Okay. <laughs> What's your number seven? Uh, Fallout New Vegas. Not on my list. Okay, interesting. So, now this is a head choice, because this isn't actually a heart choice. It actually took a bit of effort for me to put this on my list, because <laughs> I thought there's no world in which I can say Final Fantasy Thirteen is a better game than New Vegas. It's simply not what people believe. And... <laughs> I think that I kind of know in my heart of hearts that that's true too. So there's a big tension in... I saw this on PC Gamer all the time where all commenters wanted to do was tell you how Bethesda's Fallout games were not proper Fallout games but 
Fallout New Vegas was a proper Fallout game. It was like the worst thing in the universe. Please just shut up and get on with your lives. <laughs> That's how I felt about it. I love Fallout 3, and I think it's a more complete game than New Vegas is. Obviously made by Obsidian a couple years after Fallout 3. I love the idea of farming out you know, um, a, a sort of like follow-up game, not quite a sequel to a developer that's got the expertise to make it. What a cool thing. I would love to have had another um, Obsidian Fallout game in between. Came out in quite a, like, a bumpy state. Uh, there was like a big argument about Metacritic at the time. None of that is very interesting in retrospect. The New Vegas side of things was, it was kind of like, what people love about it is how malleable the story was and how much you could like make choices that actually informed the course of the game. So turning factions against each other and just being generally reckless and seeing how the game kind of copes with it. And the game coped with it pretty well. So when I played mm. this, I actually only played this about three or four years ago, whacked on a load of like visual mods. You can make this game look fucking amazing on PC, which is nice. Mm. And basically just tried to turn every single faction against me and each other. And at one point... <laughs> a character in the game was like but if you've also betrayed them then they'll just want to attack oh oh okay and like the game was reacting in real time to all the bullshit i'd been doing to like crossing right. caesar's legion and then the different the other different factions of the game i was just there thinking okay fine if i can piss everyone off what let's just do this and see what happens and the game was like actually reacting to it so i, I think that's core to the magic of why people like this along with the fact that the flavor of the early fallout games people thought bethesda had lost a bit now that i can kind of i can kind of agree with it was like a dark sense of humor to the early fallout games three fallout three is not really about that this brings a little bit more of the nasty side of fallout back i would say and um for that i kind of understand it i would say the reason i don't like it as much as three is the world is not nearly as fun to explore when you get to the Vegas Strip, it kind of looks more like Fallout Bogner Regis, you know? That's just down to, like, the <laughs> limitations of what the hardware can do. You can only make yeah. Vegas look so good. But I absolutely respect this as, like, a, a solid RPG of the time. And what a treat to have another Fallout game two years after the um, after mm. Fallout 3. What do you think, Matthew? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree with all of that. I mean, the reason it's not on my list is that... In recent years, I've fallen out a little bit with the kind of not the fallout. I think specifically like the obs- like the Obsidian style of RPGs, like what they value. I don't know that I value. Um, I think this came out of playing um, the Outer Worlds, where again, like they were priding themselves. Like I think they were trying to draw a lot of kind of connective tissue to New Vegas with that. In in terms of like. Whatever character you build and whatever decisions you make, you know, we want that to be reflected properly in the game. And maybe this is just going to sound really contrarian and doesn't make any sense. But when I'm playing a game which is bending over backwards to accommodate everyone, I feel like nothing is special. I feel like every decision is actually kind of meaningless because the game is is so elastic that it fits me. Like, I actually don't mind the... That they seem very averse to someone seeing something and not being able to access it or not be able to have anything. You know, they everyone needs to feel special, mm. and I'm okay not feeling special if it means they're like the like the peaks are that much higher. And f- I will say for me, like a lot of Obsidian stuff, and I get this in New Vegas too. I actually don't respond as positively to like how many consequences there are because I, I, it just makes the whole thing feel a bit false to me i don't know if that makes any sense <laughs> i i see why the why a certain type of hardcore player responds to the 
to this type of game because it's a role-playing game you want to inhabit the role and in theory throwing your toys out the pram allows you to do that because you are you have been empowered as a player to be able to to do that and i i I respect that point of view and why people believe that but i don't think it's all there is to an rpg and i agree with you i think the the big moments in fallout 3 i found really effective and so you know i don't think i don't think that i guess I, i i guess like you i value those big moments over that malleability yeah i i think i'm i'm interested in i'm interested in in in, when it comes to choices and consequences i'm interested in in games which let you you know they give everyone the big problem and you have all the choices to make and the interesting thing is the act of deciding what you're going to do not whether i've bought a particular character to the mix who can do x y or z i'm not interested in choices that only my character can do i'm interested in difficult choices where i can pick any of the answers it's the difference between bioware and the difference at least between mass effect i'd say and like new vegas Mm. in like mass effect is these big universe defining moral dilemmas where okay you only get three choices maybe but everyone can make those three choices and they're all kind of interesting where here it's like well for every situation we've got like a hundred different things can happen and you're like well yes but i you know i don't i don't need that i'd rather have less good stuff (laughs) let fewer options that are better (laughs) yeah no i can kind of see that yeah for sure But that's i don't know i that isn't the that isn't the narrative around New Vegas. Like why it is so celebrated now is like, you know, there are loads of big massive video essays on YouTube where they're like, just take this one mission and and see how malleable it is and see how cleverly it kind of adapts to every character. And it's like it's okay to feel like you didn't get something because it makes the things you do get feel more special. Yeah, I feel. I think that's well put. Yeah, and that's you know, I I could see why someone would have this higher up on their list. It's like. You know, if this is seen as the Fallout players Fallout game, that's completely fine with me. I mm. think that I I drew limited joy from the um the main quest line in this game. Whereas I thought the main quest line in Fallout Three was just a really good breadcrumb trail and fascinating mm. and took yeah. you to took you to some really cool stuff. I mean, again, I, I, I like New Vegas a lot. I haven't played it as much as Fallout Three. I don't think I've done every single quest in it. So perhaps, you know, yeah. my take isn't like the most qualified compared to some of the other games on my list. It's not like you know, I've, it's not like I've played it twenty times or whatever. Yeah, I think uh, I, I definitely respected what it was trying to do, and you know, absolutely rate it as one of the best games of this year. So um, yeah, that's mm. where I'm at. Also, think that the Outer Worlds showed that maybe people um, I, I don't know. Like, uh, it was quite interesting seeing a bit of a lukewarm response to that. And I couldn't tell if people had just maybe built up the reputation of this game too much, or if maybe that that game on its own terms wasn't giving people what they wanted exactly it was yeah. hard to weigh we, up we did a playthrough of that on the on the rock paper shotgun youtube channel where they made this big thing of like you can kill anyone so we made the decision like we were going to kill as many people as possible and make every bad decision and it's like yes the game technically works but it's also boring as hell mm. so congratulations you know <laughs> What what an achievement! Because they had to bend over backwards to make it work, and you're like, well, what's the point? Yeah. You've created this miserable, unsatisfying playstyle. <laughs> like, just don't include it. Yeah, don't include it, and this would be a better, more interesting game. Yeah, maybe we, you know, yeah. Okay, yeah, well, that's a good chat, though, Matthew. I enjoyed the, the, discussing <laughs> that a little bit. So, what's your number six? My number six is Infinite Space. Ah, oh, that was one of my honourable mentions. I, I'm, I'm shocked to see it this high, but excited to hear your take on it. I love Infinite Space. I feel like I'm Infinite Space kind of number one UK games journalist cheerleader. Yeah, I I, I thought this was just a, a fantastic 
mix of kind of sort of characterful sort of sci-fi visual novel as you walk around you trip you know go around space meeting all these interesting characters uh meets really compelling and deep um space battles made by platinum games uh in collaboration with nude maker directed by hifumi kono who is mr steel battalion aka that game with that mad controller (laughs) with all the buttons i think there is a through line from steel battalion to this weirdly in terms of really delivering on like the fantasy of something in a big way in there it was mechs here it's spaceships and building a spaceship and kind of command uh, commanding a kind of space armada what's really interesting about infinite space is it has this very simple rock paper scissor battle system that is greatly influenced by the very specific ships you bring into it it has quite a simple setup in terms of how battles control it's not like steel battalion like there's only like three buttons on screen or something so it it looks it's very easy to kind of like actually manipulate but the very specific spaceships you bring in like their behavior really alters where they fit into the rock paper shotgun oh, rock paper scissors <laughs> uh, um, <laughs> or cell phone <laughs> that's really thrown me uh, that it, it really uh yeah that it, it really influences like how you use the rock paper scissors system so like you know you can build something you can you can literally build like a glass cannon you know where the whole ship is geared to just like bringing things down in a couple of like incredible shots but if they don't do it they are fucked or you can build just like this absolute like just beast that can absorb shots and just whittle people down you can make a ship which is actually all about being like having so many crew members on board that you can just flood um rival ships with like infiltration squads and you can do it just because you've got the manpower but the nature of those ships and they can't be all things like you really have to dedicate the design to one thing and ships are built like using this sort of like uh almost like resident evil inventory system like you have a fixed grid and you're slotting rooms onto the ship so you can really build any combination of of facilities and sort of statistical strengths and weaknesses that you want. And I was just amazed at how much character each ship had and how it came through in combat. I, I thought this, on paper, not my jam at all. Like, I am not into, like, hard sci-fi. I'm not into kind of spaceships and, and I'm not, like, into, like, naval strategy and that kind of stuff, you know. Whenever spaceships are having fights in Star Trek, I'm super bored. But here, like, I just felt my decisions echoing through this simple battle system. I think it is sublime as an RPG. I love this game. I will say it is fucking hard as nails. And it's really easy to screw yourself over. So you basically have to learn to play it with very clever... A lot of save scumming to get through it, which is a big downside. And I think a lot of people bounced off that. But if it does click... Oh boy, this is a great game. Mm. Yeah, so um, I, sh- I must confess, Matthew, when I said shocked, I think I, r- I realised I thought you meant Infinity Blade on iOS, which is in my own <laughs> watches. Um, I'm not shocked by this at all, of course, because we talked about it in a previous episode. Um, so I thought, oh, Jesus, Matthew put this swipe on the screen sword combat game. Um, that's just because I've had five hours sleep. So um, 
good good content there yeah so this is um obviously one of the games that comes out of the platinum sort of deal it's so it's one i'm like not mega experienced with but i <laughs> i think that goes for most people <laughs> well i was just looking on ebay and there are copies selling for like you won't ever get this for the retail price now basically it's you know right. unsurprisingly a kind of cult favorite but i love the look of it in screenshots and stuff it's always been one i've intended to play and like i just love the idea that, you know basically every other game that comes out of that platinum deal is like an action game that's vaguely in the mold of you know devil may cry or you know the stuff clover studio was well well known for and then there's this very strange ds only thing that will probably never release again in any other form and it's a hardcore spaceship game on ds i just think that's (laughs) um that's a rad thing to exist it has i will say it's got like a vital bit of platinum dna in it in that like it's very funny there's like quite characterful like weird enemy designs you know there are a lot of quite dry boring looking spaceships but there's also like a disco death star that you have to fight and things like that right yeah and it sort of has without kind of spoiling the story it has this sort of um it sort of hit it sort of flips a little bit in into the game and like it starts off as it's quite silly sort of space opera and ends up being a bit more like sort of sort of profound 2001 it's quite it's quite an interesting mix like it's got this very two clear kind of phases to it yeah it's just it's really really hard i think it's 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 interesting because i think he in arbor basically wanted to make it because he produced steel battalion and was like platinum should be doing this (laughs) so he kind of brings he brings in the director and i'm glad that they did make it there was no coverage of this they did like no previews for this game at all right like i think the first time we ever saw it it just turned up as a review cart i started tinkering away with it and was like holy shit i think this is actually amazing uh and then like everyone else gave it like seven (laughs) yeah i mean this is like an absolutely fucking heavyweight year for platinum obviously as we'll get into i'm sure a little bit more down the line but um what what a cool thing yeah i can just i just know from the way you've described it that a certain type of our list of matthew will be going onto ebay now and figuring out how on earth they can get their hands on this so um... just to save a lot is all i'll say or you're gonna have a rough time <laughs> yeah expect to pay like if you want a new copy i just saw one for like 70 quid so um that's where we're at but um obviously we know there are basically gangsters out there at the moment trying to like goose the prices of pre-owned games so yeah it's me on this podcast <laughs> yeah I, um... i've only included it because i've got 10 copies i want to sell <laughs> Yeah, the Matthew Castle cartel is um, is in full swing. Um, okay, cool. So, Matthew, what uh, that was your number seven? Six. Six, right. Okay, cool. Yep. So, we're on to my number six, which is Vanquish on Xbox 360 and PS3. Is this on your list? This isn't on my list. Yeah, so I thought when you have Bayonetta lower down, I thought, well, he probably doesn't have Vanquish on his list then, because I think both of us will probably agree that Bayonetta is the um, superior game. So... Hmm. Nonetheless, this is an excellent um, third-person shooter um, directed by Shinji Mikami, made by Platinum Games, part of their Sega deal like Infinite Space Wars and Bayonetta. This was uh, sort of like widely anticipated by my peers, but kind of ignored by um, the larger sort of like audience for blockbuster games. I had a bit of chip on my shoulder about the fact that so many people played Gears of War, but no one gave a shit about this. I was like, if you play Gears of War, but not this, you have no taste. And like these days, I don't <laughs> care because, you know, I'm in my 30s and I've got better things to worry about. But um, yeah, Vanquish basically like brings a spin on this where you are incredibly mobile while you're doing third person cover shooting. So you're like in this kind of suit that basically lets you kind of rocket around on your knees, shooting enemies and pausing for slow-mo 
and performing kind of like physical uh, sort of like attacks as well at high speed and basically just bringing a lot more momentum to a genre that become a bit too much, a bit too stayed and uh, stay behind cover until everyone's been popped in the head, basically. And this was mm. like a kind of mega arcadey, exciting approach to to that sort of thing. I would say that one area where it doesn't shine for me versus platinum's other games is i don't think it's got much of a personality people might disagree with this but no that's that's kind of why it doesn't make my list like mechanically beautiful beautiful but i find it quite hard game to like love outright yeah and i think that's completely fair like i think you play something like resident evil 4 and you're like oh okay well you know a mikami sort of like shooter will surely have a bit of this kind of like flavor that just that's not like super essential to enjoy the game but kind of like it's the sort of thing that cements it in your memory and it doesn't have that. Mm. It has this very boring kind of like um, Hillary Clinton-esque kind of uh, president figure and some terrorists. Some, I don't really remember it. Your main character's kind of a dud. But yeah, but just in terms of like a combat game, as a kind of like Japanese spin on what had become a very kind of Western-dominated genre was rad. And it did look amazing. And it's really cool that you can play this on PC now at 60 frames. Um, I'm glad that mm. that happened. That happened a few years ago. So yeah, Vanquish, Matthew. Any thoughts? Yeah, I, I basically with you. I mean, yeah, like I say, didn't didn't quite make the list for me, but yeah, like a really beautiful thing. Like Mikami just knows game feel and gets game feel in a way that very few others do. Fab stuff. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Just um, yeah, very sophisticated third person shooter, and um, just a, a lot more fun than its contemporaries were. So I, I swear I've heard some like interesting stories from Rich Stanton about the press trip for this. Um, I think Rich is is coming up on an upcoming episode. We'll definitely grill him for that. Yeah, I uh, think there was some. I someone asked some very sort of like poorly judged question and sort of insulted this action master. So hopefully we can dig into that in a future episode. Yep, I'm sure that will, that podcast is going to end up being 40 minutes of Metal Gear Solid Two chat and then like two hours of um, Rich telling us stories. <laughs> I'm sure, but um, that should be good. So what's your number five, Matthew? Well, this seems a bit gross considering like Bayonetta's so low and Vanquish isn't on my list. And <laughs> this is a big heart choice. From number five, I've actually got Castlevania Lords of Shadow. Oh yeah, it didn't make my list, but not really one I played to be honest. Kind of passing by. Oh my god, I love this game. I'd say this is my favourite of the of those kind of like hack and hack and slash kind of God of Wary clones. I I probably prefer this over like any particular God of War. Mm. Maybe bar the PS4 one, which is just so different. Yeah, big kind of Castlevania reboot. Uh, What's interesting about this is that obviously Castlevania had been like ruling the roost as as a sort of 2D Metroidvania. And this sort of goes back more to the sort of NES and SNES games in that it's, you know, it's a very linear progression through a series of themed levels, but obviously like punched up and pumped up with kind of this generation's sort of visual juice gorgeous game mercury steam made it amazing art design like it's often likened to the kind of guillermo del toro sort of fantasy films that might just be a lazy they're a spanish studio kind of connection but it it's got big pan's labyrinth energy in places one of my favorite kind of sort of games for a sort of sense of progression in that you start out in these tiny little villages and there's this idea of like you know dracula's castle this huge thing you're working towards you catch glimpses of it in other levels and there's this real sense of making your way towards it despite it being this kind of linear succession of levels you know it's it's got a such an amazing sense of world and kind of coherence for not an open world game 
I really love that about it. It really leans into kind of like tropey, kind of like spooky witch's house and creepy old castle. You know, there are smaller castles before you reach the big castle. When you finally get there, it's just like, holy shit, this place looks amazing. It looks absolutely massive. Um, great sense of cinematic style. I love the action. You've got this, um, it's, it's kind of like this chain whip, but it, it really sells you on like La- like the the momentum and the violence of like lashing something and he like builds up momentum it's really heavy and slow but powerful it's got a great feel it's not like god of war is so fast it's like butter it's like no sense of weight to a lot of god of war i feel because it's so quick and and super zippy where this is like a bit a bit slower a bit heavier like it's hero and really sells you on that uh great bosses it's got a couple of like Shadow of Colossus style kind of climb the boss to kind of kill it mm. things. I mean, it cribs from all over the place, but in really fun ways. I never really understood what the Kojima connection was because <laughs> it was like produced or executive produced by Kojima and they threw his name around a lot. Yeah, a bit cynical. Yeah, I mean, outside of it having like a celebrity cast, which feels a bit Kojima-y in terms of like... You know, it's got Patrick Stewart and Jason Isaacs and Robert Carlyle. You know, it's got a slightly weird cast. You know, it feels like the kind of weirdo actors that Kojima would also sort of be into, particularly Robert Carlyle. It's like, it's not really a name you'd put on a poster of anything at that time. Yeah, I just, you know, I reviewed this and didn't really know much about it, hadn't been following it and was just bowled over by how much I, I like of it and it maybe it's amplified in my head because of that surprise factor mm. that sometimes happens when you're reviewing games you know you're like oh wow this is actually really good and maybe you think it's a bit better than it actually is but i have replayed it since and, uh, on pc where it's got obviously a much nicer frame rate and is super gorgeous just a big lush crazy production of values in this game yeah just great yeah, so I don't have like loads of sympathy for uh, this time when it comes to like publishers who farmed out series to the Western developers and they obviously did a shit job. And like just loads of duds came out of that initiative and it seemed very cynical. And I just thought, well, the reason people like these series is because they had a specific mix of like influences and a flavor that they that that really worked for them and so to strip that out it becomes quite an anodyne sort of cover version but mm. on the flip side of that it's when developers get it really really right like um you know obviously uh, ninja theory did with dmc mm. and yeah and this obviously is another sort of successful example of the time it's almost a bummer that it doesn't lead on to like bigger and better things for mercury steam there's that second one and then they've yeah. kind of been in, like, um, making Metroidvanias for Nintendo. I don't know a lot else. I think they've done some other stuff, but I'm not that familiar they did, with they, them. They've recently. got a kind of games of service thing called, oh, not Steam Lords, something like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they, they, they had this sort of games of service thing, which they own themselves that they're making, which they seem to still be, like, pottering away on. Mm. But, the, yeah, and then doing this kind of contract work for Nintendo. Some people are super down on Mercury Steam. Like, they don't rate anything they've done, and they especially don't rate their Metroid games. I, I liked, I really liked the 3DS Metroid game. I'm really excited for the, the Dread as well. So, yeah, I, I rate this team. Lords of Shadow 2 is... Like it's got a couple of really great things, a couple of great boss fights, some lovely art design, but it is very balked in 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 a lot of ways. Mm. Made me about as angry as I've been when I was playing a review game with this terrible stealth section. Yeah, but this one I just thought real good. 
real good. I think it's got a bit of a cult following, you know. It just feels maybe a bit gross to put it above Platinum's games because they are they're just so definitive as like action experiences and so much more sophisticated and accomplished. Yeah. But I I like the world of Castlevania. I like that it's set in the Castlevania thing. I I I just it, it feels like a very complete package to me and yeah, mega heart choice. Mm. Yeah, this is a, a CEX purchase for me that has remained on my sh- shelf for uh, ten years. So um, <laughs> yeah, but um, I'm glad I'm here, glad to hear it on your list. It's yeah, it's still a game I don't know much about. I, m- I played it briefly. I was a bit confused by the level structure of it. I did think it was going to be a game in a big castle, but like you say, that comes later. Yeah, so, uh, yeah. yeah, it's odd. Uh huh. Okay, great stuff. So my number five, Matthew, is Bioshock Two. Not on my list. Did it make your long list at all? Yeah. <laughs> I I don't think it yeah I don't think it ever troubled the top ten. That's fair enough. Can I hit you with the wildest hot take? Okay, go on. I wonder if I wonder if Bioshock Two is a little. The people who say Bioshock Two is the better one are, <laughs> are a bit like the people that say Alien Three is the best one. <laughs> I used to, yeah. I mean, I I know exactly what you're tapping into there, but I don't think it's like I think it's a better combat game than the first Bioshock, but I don't think it like it's able to club you over the head with the sort of like, wow, look at this world building in the way that that one was. It was kind of like, yeah, it's not not an expansion pack. It doesn't feel like that, but it does feel like not entirely a full sequel, which I think is completely fine. It was made in a very short space of time. Bunch of uh, the Irrational devs went off, 2K Boston devs went off and formed a new studio, 2K Marin, and made this in you know a pretty short space of time. Uh, you play a big daddy in the game, it introduces uh, Sophia Lamb, a kind of like a rival to Andrew Ryan, who wasn't in the first game. So you have that kind of narrative pill to swallow. She's got like different philosophies and stuff. Mm. And um, generally speaking, you're, it feels like it's a reflection of the first Bioshock in some ways. Like you meet certain types of characters where you're like, well, who's going to be the Atlas figure who betrays me here? And mm. what's going to be the big moment? And the game kind of like does some quite interesting things with that. It's not it's not really a twist filled game. Sometimes the twist is the fact that there isn't a twist. I would say in this game. But to be honest, though, Matthew, like the the story side of it is not really why I dug this. It was the fact that you got to see more of Rapture, and the fact that playing as a big daddy meant you got to see some of Rapture underwater, which is really effective. And I think this is a really good example of like an immersive sim type game, a systemsy game where you play a tank rather than, like, a stealth character. So much of this game is about, like, you know, hacking one of those, like, flying drone things, the t- little turret things, um, setting up your little turrets, putting down, like, rivet traps. There are, like, a few occasions where there's just an absolute rush of enemies and it's about preparing for the fight. And because you're mm. more of a powerhouse than you were in the first game going around clubbing people with a wrench because you've got, like, a drill arm and a rivet gun... You just feel much more of a badass. And I think that that was a, a transformative approach to the combat. I mean, at the time, I really liked it. I reviewed it and I gave it a 9 for um, X360 magazine. And I think that maybe, you know, you could argue it comes up short in the narrative aspect in terms of like it ha- it's not, you know, it, it can never reach the heights of the first game. But that was always going to be a tough, a tough thing to do anyway. But I think it's a more, a less uneven game than Infinite would end up being. And it showed there was more life left in Rapture. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I, 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 th- I think for me, like the, the big hurdle this game never got over was that I, I don't think you can experience like Rapture will never have the same impact the second time round that it had the first. Mm. Like, is such an amazing like that is such a sort of generation defining bit of world building for me that I felt like okay, more of this. 
And I, I love that that point you make about the like at, like an action focus immersive sim. I think that's that's like a, a really elegantly put. I just I just don't like the feel of the action enough in this world. Like you know, on paper, yes, it's much more sophisticated, and you know, it does more interesting thing with the powers. And you have those, like you say, the kind of preparation phase before the attack. But fundamentally, fundamentally, like these games, then they're, they're not particularly nice game feel games Hmm. um i don't think and because of that that bigger focus i don't know puts that into sort of exposes that a bit more i guess yeah i do like i probably a bit like it's it's by no means as bad as alien (laughs) 3 it just i I just feel like the take is like oh oh, this is better than the first and i just don't feel that way at all yeah i I think that i think i prefer the areas of rapture i do prefer the areas of rapture you see in the first one Mm -hmm. i think it has a bigger impact i think bar the the very last like hour two hour stretch i prefer the general journey through that world it's not as interested in being a big daddy it's still great i really really enjoyed it i think it's just been elevated a bit more than i would elevate it myself like i i probably prefer infinite to this yeah i think that as in world building i absolutely prefer infinite to this um i think that uh combat wise i don't know there's probably not loads in it mm. i don't know i don't uh, i don't it's know it's never a series which is like nailed nailed combat i would say no so. i thought i thought the combat was better in this one though i think that it i think it was slightly more refined in feel and the fact that you weren't as dependent on i would say not very good stealth systems in the first bioshock and like quite weedy attacks and dying and coming back in the vita tube like i just the rhythm of that i thought where will be down a little bit when i replayed um the original bioshock a few years ago caveat though right. i have not replayed this i ha- i did play the um uh, minerva's den dlc the story dlc they did for this about about four years after release and did still enjoy it you know it's not one that's in my recent memory for example but as a kind of like a, a choice from this year, a game that I really, really dug, um, I have no problem putting it here. And I did. Yeah. Think, I thought the big sister was kind of interesting too. This kind of like figure who would, a figure of chaos who would turn up and um, mostly for a quite a low stake scrap, and then but then would occasionally just like you know crack open a sort of like a piece of glass, and then water would pour in, and then you're suddenly mm. like walking among like sea life and stuff and. That was a little I mean, bit different to the first game. Yeah, it's such a great world. Like it's it can easy, it could have easily sustained like even more stories than it did, mm. and more visits. I think, yeah. but uh, yeah, I, I I'm not really knocking it. <laughs> That's fair enough. Yeah. So, what's your number four, Matthew? Uh, my number four is Red Dead Redemption. That's higher on my list. Mm. Yeah, my number four is Halo Reach. Not on my list. Well, not on your list. Okay, fair enough. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, this is. I think the most consistent Halo campaign. It has no total dud missions. It doesn't reach the heights of Halo 3. It has nothing like the two scarabs fight. But it does have some high points for sure. I think that so much of what I love about this game comes down to the campaign and the sort of context you're in of a planet that is like slowly collapsing into total disaster. The the feeling of dread that builds up is really, really good at making every success in in the game, in the campaign, uh, feels small within the context of this catastrophic failure that's going on around you. I think Mm. the story is great or bad, depending on how you look at it. The characters are paper thin, the dialogue isn't very good, but it's really about the feel of the world is just so powerful. Just the feeling that like you're watching a tragedy play out. I think that I've replayed this multiple times in recent years, and I think there's a, a few highlights that really that really speak to this most notably is the mission where you're flying between skyscrapers 
in the city while it's being quote unquote glass, which is like a halo term for aliens destroying big cities, basically uh, with laser <laughs> guns. And um, the city is like on fire, but over the course of the mission, it becomes more and more on fire and like more and more desperate. And and it's just, I was amazed that Halo could do something like that that could make make the feel of the world land like that. Because I never felt that way about the other Halo games. I've never cared about the story, but I think this just mm. does such a great job of just making it feel like you cannot do anything to stop this. This is going to happen to you, around you. And at best, you can just try and fight it and try and hold it off and try and get, try and save some people some lives. But millions of people are going to die here and it's going to be grim as fuck. And I think it really conveys that well. What are your thoughts, Matthew? Yeah, I mean, I think I probably need to replay this. You know, I played this when it came out and went, yeah, that's more Halo. And then never really thought in it again. I like the end of it. I think its story actually, you're right, does definitely landed more for me than the other stories that they've told. Um, I don't have the natural like affinity for like Halo that a lot of my peers, including you, have. Mm-hmm. I feel so it would take an awful lot for this to sort of punch through into my all time list. It had, did it handle slightly differently? Didn't it have like iron sights? I uh, I think it has a few different things. Like it gives you the ability to run as like an ability. You get these powers. Yeah, that's Iron Sights. Right. Don't remember even though I've played it recently. I certainly wasn't using the Iron Sights. Clearly, yeah, the cha- I, yeah, I, I, I clicked with this sort of mechanically, but I can't really sort of elegantly put what those differences are because it's just been so long. It's got the flying around in space bit. That's good. Yeah, but a little bit of Star Fox in the middle there, just to pepper it through. That was on the um, during in the E three presentation. I was there thinking, yeah, that's right. This mission's only like about fifteen minutes long, and then the rest of the game is on foot. You know, but F- yeah, huge epic scale. Bungie were arguably only getting better at making those games. Kind of a shame that we never got to see what else would happen. Yeah, I mean, in hindsight, maybe it is the highlight of it all. I don't know. It's sort of um, it's up and down. Like, I mean, I I must confess, this is one I don't have as much experience with the multiplayer, and I know that a lot of people got big into the Halo Reach multiplayer, and that latter day sort of sophistication of Halo probably resulted in a better multiplayer experience and then that carries over to halo 4 and 5 which are obviously very good multiplayer games so Mm. i miss that side of it but this as you know i i treat halo as a bit of a campaign series i guess um knowing the multiplayer is good so yeah i think i think i really dig reach but yeah i I think it's worth go back and replay that thing you're talking about with the city that sounded cool like it it didn't I, i don't really remember much about it apart from the bit in space and the end so um yeah i should go back that sounds i want to see that yeah it probably helps that the the master chief collection of the games that haven't been like remastered this comes off the best um, probably because it's right. more recent. That's just unfair on Halo 4, which still looks really good. But uh, yeah, yeah, it's. Um, I really dig it. I think for a lot of people, this is the Halo story they wanted to see told in the games. And Bungie did a great job of it. Like you say, the, the, the kind of like last stand element to the story at the end, mm. which they may or may not have cribbed from Crisis Core, Final Fantasy VII. I don't know, but it's obviously that kind of like Butch Cassidy kind of ending, isn't it, really? It's um, go out fighting. <laughs> or Blackadder goes forth. Uh, your mileage may vary. But uh, yeah, Halo Reach, Matthew. <laughs> So we're up to your number three, right? I hope this list doesn't sound too contrarian just because of all these classics you've got up higher. <laughs> no, no. I mean, I, I just, this really demonstrates what different tracks we're on, I think, this list. Yeah. Like, it just, and also, I think, I, I, I really, I actually really dig your list. I think your, your choices are really good. And I, I like <laughs> having the difference. So, uh, yeah, go ahead. We've got another DS game. We've got nine hours, nine persons, nine doors. The first of the Zero Escape series, uh, made by Chunsoft, written and directed by Kataro Uchikoshi. These are 
visual novels for the most part with branching storylines and difficult decisions to make which result in sticky ends for lots of people but it's also broken up with escape room segments where you look around rooms and solve puzzles kind of like miniature kind of contained point and click games i think people know what escape room games are like there was like a big craze for them like 20 years ago like flash versions of these um, like Crimson Room, I think it was Crimson Room, maybe? Yeah, so, you know, it's like a big burst of sort of lots of sort of static dialogue and story, but then broken up with these quite engaging kind of like, maybe they take you, I don't know, between half an hour and an hour, maybe, um, point, point and click sections, which I think kind of break it up and give the game a, a bit more kind of variety than just the straight visual novel. So it's a very good gateway drug to that genre. <laughs> it's also like a fantastically kind of pulpy, twisty, satisfying thriller. Uh, the characters awake on a ship. They've been locked into a game called the Nunnery Game, where which basically involves these sort of weird bracelets um, and a lot of strange arcane rules about which combinations of people can open doors on the ship and they're trying to escape. Um, like I say, most things you try, you end up dead and then you jump back in the story flow chart because it's presented as a big flow chart and um, start making different decisions and branching it out in different ways. Without spoiling it, what's great about this game and the Zero Escape series in general is that there is a mechanical and narrative justification for the structure of of like a choose your own adventure which is really interesting mm. and just sells the whole thing a lot better you know it doesn't feel arbitrary it doesn't feel like you're just replaying it for the sake of because it's a visual novel and that's what you do um it's a great like sort of sci-fi meets sort of saw type thriller twisted game but with a sort of interesting sci-fi back to it um it also sets you on the path for enjoying the next two, um, Virtue's Last Reward, and the other one, which name I've, I've, I've forgotten. Oh. Yeah, I can't remember what the last part's called. That's embarrassing. <laughs> but uh, anyway, a trilogy which is very much a big continuation, and you need to play them all in order. Very twisty. They only get more satisfying. This one, a really great place to start. It's on DS, it's on PC. You can play it on ios as well though that might just be the visual novel portions of the game i think they like dumbed it down and made a weird ios version so maybe don't go for that um just if you like crime and mystery thrillers this this is a, a brilliant story yeah zero time dilemma was the um, other one matthew zero time that's it yeah that's it i would i always thought it was baffling that this only released in north america in the west yeah i mean it, i think it had like a moderate audience just because DS was region free, hmm. so it wasn't too much of a problem. Like anything like that, you just you just import. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was frustrating, um, particularly because they bought over part two, and you're like, you know, obviously now you can get them all quite readily available on on like Vita, I think as well. Definitely on PC. They they, they bundled up one and two on PC. Maybe the whole trilogy in quite a nice PC port. I mean, they're not visually spectacular or anything, but. Hmm. And I don't know if sitting at a desktop is the ideal way, as with Ace Attorney and all these things. <laughs> Maybe a good one to test out on your um, Steam Deck. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think it is quite funny, actually. That I, the idea of using my PS5 to play this is quite funny, um, which I, I, yeah. I do own this on um, PS4. So, uh, yeah, always meant to play it, but um, 
no, a, a cool choice. You know, it's had a, it's like you say, had a, a, a massive reputation, even though the fact it was from a, you know, a smallish developer and publisher. Um, yeah, yeah. It's just it's impossibly twisty. You know, like it, the, the guy is uh, amazing at doing twists and like completely. You know, you will definitely be like knocked on your ass like a handful of times playing this game. It's it's really really satisfying. Again big heart choice if i can ask a, a, a kind of question for people who are like relatively new to this genre matthew what's the order yeah. people should play phoenix right danganronpa zero escape what's the kind of like oh. uh phoenix Wright's the easiest one to get into yeah because like tonally it's it's friendly the mysteries you can kind of get your head around it. it's 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 a recognizable sort of world um i then probably say zero escape mm-hmm. in terms of it's less of an acquired taste than Danganronpa, you know. It's a really juicy thriller, a bit a bit edgy in places, but mechanically it's quite smooth. And then Danganronpa's got like some arcade elements which make it a bit more hectic. Hmm. Um, so yeah, Ace Attorney, Zero Escape, Danganronpa. Yeah. Okay. Good stuff. Well, I'm I'm glad I asked that because I think people um, probably another series yeah. people will be curious about from hearing you discuss it. So. Uh... Yeah, but um, PS4, super cheap um, way to get hold of that game. It's, off, it's often on sale, the uh, Nonary Games collection. So, mm. yeah. Number three then, Matthew, for me, is Bayonetta. So, right. earlier on your list. So, like I say, it's more of a heart choice than Vanquish. At the time, I was massive on Devil May Cry. Some of the Devil May Cry entries on PS2, 1 and 3. Um, I was less bothered by 4, though I, 4, as I've mentioned on previous episodes, had some depth that I wasn't... I wasn't good enough at the game to truly get to grips with, but I thought this was a great sort of like return to that 3D action genre from Kamir, uh, the director and his team. They really created quite an interesting character, a kind of like a weird and wacky world that was quite easy to love. A bunch of weapons that fit together really perfectly, like elemental gauntlets and obviously like a big sword and a whip, and um, had such such kind of like a dense progression system and like um, sort of layers of stuff to unlock that you really needed to play it twice to get the most out of it. And obviously mm. had um, "Fly Me to the Moon" in its soundtrack, which was a great sort of like um, motif to, to use in this game. Really gave it a, like a nice flavour. So you had this early on your list, Matthew. What's your take on it? Yeah, I it's a game like. I, I love playing it. I really admire it. I definitely have never got like the maximum out of it, or probably any cameo action game. Like I just don't have the the dedication to kind of learn to play them properly. So there's something I always feel like there's something slightly out of reach with his games where I'm concerned. Mm. Um, also, I'm not mad about the world of it. Like the the character and the humor and the cutscenes, not quite my bag. Um, I know there's like some Sega, like nostalgic stuff. I think it doesn't it open with like the funeral of Eggman or something. Oh yeah, I think um, that's right. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And that's that's funny because like obviously any bit of the Sonic universe that dies is a step in the right direction. <laughs> um, You're collecting rings in the game as well, which feels like yeah, yeah. Um, Sega. I, I you know I remember just the start of this where you're you're fighting on that tumbling clock tower. Um, and just being like visually like I couldn't like. It's so smooth on 360 anyway. <laughs> yeah. it, it was so smooth, so fast, so spectacular. You just can't drink it all in. There's so much going on. Um, it's wild, like one of the wildest like visual adventures. So while I don't really buy into like the fiction of the, of that world, like as a as a visual thing, of course, absolutely amazing. I mean, 
it gives you I mean, you basically you know the bosses escalate until you are you know basically fighting god in space <laughs> um which is how all games should end they know how to end a game this probably should have been higher up my list in hindsight <laughs> well um it- it depends. Like it's, you know, it's, it sounds like Castlevania was more of a hard choice for you that you did dig it. Yeah, I just, can, yeah, I just feel bad because it's it's no way near as clever or sophisticated as Bayonetta. Mm. Like it's like a tenth as sophisticated, but I can like I could sort of fully do it. I could fully appreciate its smaller scale and get my head around it. Where here, you know, I know it can do more, but I can't necessarily do more. But that's okay. I think the game's got a really cool attitude towards it. It has that, like, ultra-easy difficulty mode where you basically just hold a button and it does, like, the wildest combos imaginable. Yeah. So, like, anyone can see this game, like, at its spectacular best. But that's cool. I think when you're trying to play something, you know, you are trying to kind of play it and do it justice. And there's something about, like, getting a load of like stone medals at the end of every fight because you were so shit at it and you were like oh yeah that looked rad i had a really good time and then the game's like you got the worst level score for this yeah and you're like oh okay i mean that's that's you know i was having a good time so who cares i guess but that's something i've never quite been able to like sort of rectify in my head is is that kind of the the gulf between what can be done and what I can do in a Kamiya game. I think... It's, I'd, I'd say it's the only thing which kind of stumbles for me. I think what really helps build the bridge to sort of like newer players with this, like you say, the easy automatic mode, that's one thing. The other thing is that the dodge slow-mo element actually like really gives you a chance if you're a player who feels a bit yeah. unsure about it. Like, um, A, it feels really good as a system. I know that some hardcore Devil May Cry players fucking hate that system because, you know, everything on the internet is about gatekeeping with your favourite series. It's a load of old horseshit. Yeah. A bit like the Fallout thing I mentioned earlier. But I really dug it. It's like, oh, you know, here's a thing that any player can get. It's like, it's um, unlike the really, really abstract um, counter systems in like Bloodborne and Dark Souls. It's just you hit the button when you're about to be attacked, and then you dodge it. And then there's a, a few seconds of slow-mo where you can like get your bearings again. And I thought that the learning curve in this is really, really good, actually. I, I would say mm. I, I don't think I ever encountered a, a boss that I found super, super hard on like a normal difficulty setting. I found it like quite a comfortable experience. And yeah, like I say, I really enjoyed it on a replay. I just felt like I really got to grips with it the second time around. If anything, the reason I don't like the second one as much is because the weapons didn't fit together in the same way. I didn't feel like I ever got a loadout that I liked in Bayonetta 2. Um, it's, yeah. yeah. Can't... It's, got some weird pa- it's got some weird pacing issues as well in that it's like a lot more of a succession of giant boss fights. Yeah. Like there's less interesting kind of gauntlets of multiple enemy types. Mm. It's a little bit off the second one yeah amazing peaks but it's not as kind of consistently entertaining for my money it lacks some of the fun touches that this one has too like obviously the um motorbike sequence where the afterburner theme is playing or the space <laughs> harrier sequence that is just space harrier um that's yeah. I, I i dug that stuff i thought that the capcom and sega references were really fun i think i probably agree with you that like when i really think about it I there's nothing about the world or the enemy design in terms of like their visual design that like really jumps out to me but I think Bayonetta herself was a great creation. She's like dated weirdly well. I think I, at the time I thought, oh, well, this is just quite a horny design. But then you read like, oh, no, a woman designed this and actually like has uh, seems to have persisted as a kind of cultural figure, Bayonetta, in a way that yeah. I didn't necessarily, I guess I just didn't really comprehend as someone who was like in his early 20s writing about this stuff, you know? 
Yeah, I, I, I don't have a problem with it on that sense. I just think it's weirdly talky for right. a game where the writing isn't like particularly like witty. Yeah, yeah. Like I find that with quite a few platinum games. Like whenever I get to the cutscenes, I had this with the wonderful one hundred and one as well. They just go on like a minute too long. I'm just like, oh, sh-. like for a game which has got such hectic action, they're quite plodding in their like narrative sort of interludes, and I don't know. That's that. Oh, it's that, fine. But that, that, I think that's just a bigger platinum problem. Yeah, for sure. I do remember reading the Edge review of this as well and thinking that was a great review at the time. Um, oh, yeah. yeah that's Cut a, an Edge 10. Yeah, that's a classic Rich Stanton review, isn't it? So, um, yeah, <laughs> but I remember being a very good bit of writing. So, yeah, I love I love Bayonetta. I still love it all these years later. I hope the third one comes out, but I'm not I'm not as, I'm not not as that invested in it. Either way, this remains a, um, a classic in my memory. So what's your number mm. two, Matthew? My number two is the ultimate castle heart choice. <laughs> It's Last Window, The Secret of Cape West. Yes, there he is. He's back. I feel like the first, I feel like Hotel Dusk got a bit of attention, Matthew, but maybe this one didn't at the time. Is that fair? Yeah, I don't know if this one ever actually came out in the States. Mm, definitely came out in Europe though, right? Yeah, yeah. And we got it, if, if it did come out in the States, we definitely got it before them, which, which was strange. Yeah, I just don't think, Nintendo paid for this game to be made and I don't really know why because it doesn't fit in with, you know, it's not a classic Nintendo series. I guess it has some of the novelistic elements that they were trying to push with, like, Leighton. Because that was always how they saw Professor Leighton, was like, mums who like reading will like it. But this is very different tonally. Like, I don't think a mum would enjoy this sort of scruffy man sort of mooching around his apartment for, like, 15 hours, kind of being a bit stroppy with people, which is basically all the game is. Like Hotel Dusk, you play Carl Hyde, who's a sort of investigator in the sort of 80s. I don't think it's the 70s, I think it's the 80s. And, yeah, you return home to your building. People are being asked to move out because the building is being sold. And there is one last mystery to be solved in the building before you leave. I've definitely spoken on this podcast before about my theory that this was about, like, the end of days at Sing. I love that Um, theory so much. And it's so sad that they didn't, they shot that down for you. Yeah, but they did shoot it down. They said it was just a just a sad circumstance, you know, just a sad coincidence. Um, but there's this air of nostalgic finality through Last Window that I absolutely love. I don't think I've connected with like the vibe or mood of a game like just as a mood piece more than this one. It's still quite jaunty, and the characters are quite silly when you talk to them. But the fact that you're just in this apartment building is quite unspectacular and the lives of everyone in it is quite unspectacular and it's this sort of sense of it's not a dramatic end it's just kind of oh god we've all got to move out this is a pain in the ass i played it uh, i was reviewing it and i played it i think in the i was on i was down at my parents place down in devon and like everyone else was off down to the beach constantly or off out and about and I was being antisocial in my room. Um this is a good like lonely boy game because <laughs> <laughs> Carl Hyde is this sort of sort of bit of a loner in it and I was sitting in this house playing this little thing kind of in my corner somewhere and I just really tapped into its sort of its its sort of wintry vibe. It's set in the run up to Christmas. The highlight of the game is an absolutely amazing uh, Christmas Eve scene. Basically, the whole story just pauses for you to have Christmas Eve Aww. with the other loners in this building, 
and you sort of go down to this diner and someone cooks you a meal and you play a game of billiards to try and win a better roast dinner for and you kind of chat to you chat to jazz about a sad man at a bar and it's just such a vibe this game very simple mechanically not a not a lot going on it's it's sort of like a a, a kind of really a visual novel with a more complicated 3d kind of movement interface but i just i I don't know what it says about me as a person like when i played it that i really connected with it but it's it's a it's a good game for like lonely nights i think it sings best as most consistent coherent game it has that emotional connection with them closing interestingly sing made another absolute shiter of a game this year called again right which was this like fbi thriller they didn't make it with nintendo i think they made it for like tecmo or something right it's absolute garbage <laughs> so it wasn't like they were completely knocking it out of the park but this was just like a beautiful full stop on the sing story for me and uh, i expect it's ebay prices to go up <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah and you should make some good returns off of that <laughs> UNCEX. Yeah, I think that's uh that's a great a great Matt Castle pick. And you know, I knew I knew a lot about what Hotel Dusk was, so um it's really nice to hear you uh, you know, kind of bring to life what the setting of this game is. And Yeah. Yeah, yeah what, what it's cool it's pick. like maybe less obviously like engaging as a mystery than Hotel Dusk. Mm. Like it's a bit less lynching because it you know, you're not all total strangers because it's where you live. But it's still got a lot of that vibe, which is it's just something I've never experienced for myself. I've never sat in a diner late at night drinking coffee. But you play this game and you're like, yeah, that's just what it's like. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I have after an E3 conference, you know, just had some steak and eggs and then just drank three cups of coffee at like at 8 p.m. But it's probably not the same, Matthew. <laughs> Where I, I don't think Carl Hyde's wearing a lanyard with like uh, Shenmue 3 on it, for example. But Yeah, um... were you solving a jewel heist while you were doing that? <laughs> yeah, so... Yeah, a great pick, a great pick. I, also, this was like a series where whenever you talk about it on Twitter, people are like, oh yeah, that's really cool. But I feel like not that many people have actually played Hotel Dust through to completion and probably even fewer have actually played this game at all, Matthew. So Yeah, maybe. I, I'm surprised no one's like riffed on it. I always think if I if I had like developer powers or could rustle up people to make a game happen, hmm. like an indie project, yeah. I, I, you know, I would kickstart a spiritual successor to these games mm-hmm. i think like what the core thing of what they do of like a very limited location that you grow to know intimately over quite a long game and they're still you know they're like 12 15 hours or something yeah i think people would kind of go for it and maybe there'd be enough hotel dust fans to kind of make it happen but um yeah i'm just too lazy <laughs> <laughs> i understand it's okay okay great pick matthew so my number two is mass effect 2 a very predictable uh, choice here but another defining game of working games media for me i sort of um, have mentioned on probably the mass effect episode that i didn't have loads of affection for mass effect 1 i thought that the universe felt very confident and complete when it arrived i was very impressed by it as a feat of world building and then i, I liked some of the party members and i finished it and then didn't think much of it then when mass effect 2 came up there was this kind of like momentum built up for for the series i think a lot of people have just dug what the first one was doing and were keen to see how your choices would carry across to the next game how meaningful that would be and obviously they pitched it as like you know they they swapped this rpg style combat with you know dice rolling in the background for a more straightforward third person shooter you know it felt like more like a shooter with an interactive story basically but that actually worked incredibly well as a sort of contemporary take on the rpg 
and obviously had like a, a near perfect group of party members just a really compelling bunch i mean obviously <laughs> mileage seems to vary on jacob and zaid a little bit um <laughs> but you know generally speaking found a lot of them very engaging like thane obviously Morden. And, you know, we've talked about the embarrassing uh, straight boy watching Chuck Miranda sort of horniness <laughs> going on at the time. But yes, I think that this is like the best Mass Effect game for sure. And I reflect on it very fondly. It's been nice to see Mass Effect's reputation um, elevated a little bit this year from that collection that came out. Mm. How about you, Matthew? This was on your top 10 too, wasn't it? So you were obviously massive Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, maybe I don't have the same like emotional ties to it than the games I put higher than it. But yeah, I- as an improvement over the first, just incredible, you know, pr- probably one of the, the strongest sort of sequels ever in games. The way it ties all the companion missions into the central thread, like the momentum and the direction mm. of you have this suicide mission, you're building a squad. It's actually very rare to have an RPG where it's got such clarity of what you're trying to achieve mm. that it can just thread through everything in that game. Like it's incredibly kind of cohesive you know and you know i think the payoff at the end is 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 fantastic yeah i just i just love that you know this idea of this really tight focused rpg that can give you everything you want but in a story where i actually have some idea of what i'm trying to achieve at every given moment Mm. Uh, it's a really special game yeah i think we talked on the uh, mass fetch episode which is definitely worth a listen if you've been playing those games Mm. um, about the fact that the collector's focus in this one means that you're kind of detached from the main Reaper narrative and therefore it's got a bit more leeway to make your choices matter because it's kind of like Mm. a big story within the story, essentially. Mm. And um, yeah, like you say, I think that clarity is a very good point. I think the only downside is that it doesn't communicate to you exactly what the consequences are of waiting too long to go and do that suicide mission at a certain point. That's literally the only thing I'd um, level at it. Planet scanning as well, your mileage might vary a bit. But, you know, generally speaking, made that galaxy feel huge and i think by turning you into this sort of like borderline criminal figure when you were this mythical hero obviously just incredibly um incredibly exciting you just feel like you're you're it's just a bit edgier a bit more a bit less like you're just working for the good guys and trying to bring down the bad guys and yeah i really i really just love that and i still i still love this game now i mean i haven't played the new collection version yet but i I did play through mass effect 2 a couple of times just phenomenal stuff just yeah, cast a long shadow over other Bioware games, so they haven't reached mm. these heights again still. But I hope that they do one day. And uh, mm. yeah, otherwise, I think all of our thoughts are kind of neatly tied up in that episode, weren't they, Matthew? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, cool. In which case, we come to your number one. I think I can guess what it is. Ba, 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 ba. It's Super Mario Galaxy 2. This, yeah, just how lucky were we to just get another load of Super Mario Galaxy? Um, it's kind of hard to be too sophisticated about Super Mario Galaxy 2 because, you know, it's sort of a bit of traditional sequel making that you actually don't get from from Mario normally. Like, this doesn't tend to happen. They they sort of move on and create the next masterpiece instead. Um, here, you just get the feeling that they had so many ideas, so many offcuts, they shove it in. Some people call it an expansion pack. I mean, that's a bit sneery. And if it is true, it's the best expansion pack of all time. One that arguably surpasses the original i tend to take them as one thing i bundle them together because i find it quite hard to kind of divorce one from the other i I, you know structurally i'd say that you know the the big difference is that 
I think this one gets the action a bit faster. It doesn't have the complicated kind of comet observatory. It's a bit more of like a sort of linear map system. It sort of just gets you into the levels that bit faster. So it kind of has a, a bit more of a kind of madcap energy to it, which I liked. I don't, you know, the, the comet observatory stuff is, is the is the least interesting bit of Mario Galaxy 1 for me. So um, I didn't miss it. Individually, level's fabulous. Uh, some great new power-ups. power, power ups. I loved Cloud Mario, which is basically the ability to make three platforms, which in a big 3D platform like this is just wild. Opens it up for some crazy stuff. Opens it up for an end game, which is so much better than Mario Galaxy 1, which was Do It All Again, but with Luigi. Here you have purple... Are they green or are they purple stars? I can't remember. They're either green or they're purple. Stars hidden in the levels. Basically beyond the realms of where you thought you were going to go. These aren't just like the star coins in like, you know, Super Mario 3D world where it's like, oh, look behind that bush and there's one. You know, some of these, you look at them and you're like, that actually seems like outside the bounds of the level. It's kind of that mentality that i was talking about when we were doing the previews of mario galaxy way back when when we were just trying to break the levels and use mario's athletic move set to get outside of of the space you were meant to be it felt like nintendo going we know that you can do that and that you like to do that so let's put some collectibles kind of in really bizarre places and you'll either have to use power-ups in really interesting ways or you'll have to do like the craziest long jump of your life to get there I thought that was just a, a brilliant twist on it. You know, Drill Mario, just powering through these planets. It's so physical and satisfying. I mean, the way it takes ideas from the first game and mashes them together into, into new things. So even if there are familiar ideas, they're always presented in a fresh way. It's just wild, unhinged, just joy, this game. Mario Galaxy 1 and 2, are, are the, I mean, they're the best platformers, full stop probably still my favorite games of all time i love hearing you talk about mario i think you um you're so sophisticated with how you discuss it i think as well like i always i'm always wondering why when nintendo hits across a formula like this it's really good why it doesn't more frequently double down on it like i don't know why we don't have odyssey 2 by now for example that yeah that does that you know yeah it is a bit of a mystery the, the, the strange thing is like galaxy 2 does sort of mark a change in terms of they make Galaxy 1 and they make Galaxy 2, which is like riffing on the same idea. Mm. And then they make 3D World and then they make Captain's Toad Adventure, which is like riffing on the levels from that. Yeah. Then they made three. And then they did the Bowser's Fury. Like they have revisited these things. Mm. And, it, and when they do revisit, they do follow a sort of template in that it's ideas that didn't quite make the cut the first time or it's like well, you've already got your head around the mechanics in the original game, so here's like here's like the, the, the that mechanic squared kind of thing. So yeah, it, we are missing that with Odyssey. I whatever I cannot wait to see whatever they're making next. I mean, I assume it won't get announced like until E three next year. Now, I mean, yeah, I, I haven't been following their you know, I haven't like mapped out which directs they use for what in the past. But, <laughs> That that feels that feels like too big just to be like, oh, we'll tell you about it on Wednesday kind of thing. <laughs> there are some theories that Nintendo is sat on a load of games, right, that are kind of just done, basically, on Switch. Um, and uh, they're just sort of slowly portioning them out. I don't know if that's true or not, because this year feels like, quite fallow to me, but I don't know. Yeah, I, I you know, I, I do secretly hope they have this 
mega switch and they're sitting on some stuff because they want to go you know this is good on your switch but like we made some of it with mega switch in mind and it's really going to blow your mind and that would be like my dream outcome I mean, I say dream outcome, and it would involve having to spend 400 quid probably, which would suck. But, uh, you know, I do wonder if they have this bigger software change in mind. You know, surely there would be something big to be paired with it. Yeah. What difference does uh, Yoshi make to this game, by the way? Uh, yeah, he's great. I mean, it's a, it's a really great version of him. I was reading my rev- my review of it, and he's he's the power up with power ups. I described him mm-hmm. because he eats these different fruit, which changes him. He turns into like a big healing balloon. There's like an electrified version which casts out light, which you use to kind of explore some like invisible levels. It's kind of like an X-ray mechanic. Yeah, he's really fun, and they use him well throughout. Like he's not just there for a couple of levels. Like he's 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 neatly kind of dished out through the whole thing. He's got he's the first level he's in. He's got this like incredibly catchy Koji Kondo tune, mm. which I don't know. Maybe we'll try and include somewhere in this podcast. Mm. The music in this game is obviously sublime. But yeah, yeah, Yoshi, Yoshi's you know he's a he's a, a you know a good back of the box feature. <laughs> Does it frustrate you that this wasn't included in the All-Stars collection, Matthew? Yeah, it's mad. Like, I just don't know why they wouldn't do it, because it feels like it was built, you know, it's made out of the same parts, it's got the same kind of sort of skeleton to it. Mm. Yeah, it doesn't doesn't make any sense. I thought they were going to go, surprise, everyone can have it, like, a few months in, and yeah. it was going to be really fun, and then they didn't do that, so... <laughs> well, if um, you have a Wii U, you can play it on there, so that's something. Yeah, yeah, it's, but yeah, it's a shame that it's not more, it's not easier to play. Yeah. Oh, great pick, though. I mean, obviously, you know, it's the Matthew Castle pick. And, um, yeah, I thought your list was really cool. A good good balance of Nintendo stuff and um, HD era stuff. So, Thanks, Samuel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no problem, buddy. Okay, so we come to my number one, which is Red Dead Redemption. So very predictable number one. Happy to own up to that. I think um, GTA 4 was my pick for best game of 2008. So, obviously, I was... I, I have been, like, a, a bit a bit cooler on recent Rockstar in some of these podcasts. But I actually... I, I'm not really. I appreciate that their games are, like, massively hard to make. And, you know, I'm, I'm less into the online side of stuff. But I say that having still played, like, 200 hours of GTA Online. So I'm talking complete horseshit, basically. But I still, I still <laughs> love what they make. But this era... You have GTA 4. You have GTA 4's DLC. You have... Red Dead Redemption, then you have L.A. Noir the next year, and then you have Max Payne 3, which is, you know, the lesser game of that bunch, but still still quite an interesting thing that they made. And then you have GTA 3, uh, sorry, GTA 5 in 2013. So an unbelievable run from Rockstar there. Just, mm. you know, some fantastic stuff. And we've talked about Bully in previous episodes too. This is just like probably the most I've been into the output of a publisher or developer from any period. I just really love these games. Red Dead Redemption, when I was on X360, I saw this in the preview stage. They just showed us bits of it. And it you know, it was like applying GTA sort of template to a, a Western open world. But it looked um, the action looked better than GTA 4. It has better combat than GTA 4. Um, mm-hmm. It has obviously the dead eye feature, which arguably makes the shooting a bit too simple to do. But I think that it actually um, just gave it a bit more in the way of action chops that it needed that GTA 4 didn't have. I really appreciate mm. it as a, as a kind of like um, a sort of bonus. I think that obviously the setting was very well realized. The main character, John Marston, this guy who was essentially under duress by, you know, the earlier form of the FBI to essentially give up his old buddies, to stop his old buddies um, in order to kind of like be able to live a peaceful life, which is obviously a lie that they sell him. That's a really good idea for a, a kind of story. 
obviously takes a lot from um, Unforgiven, the Clint Eastwood film, which mm-hmm. I actually only watched for the first time last year. And it's quite interesting to see the sort of like the bits Rockstar took, the bits it added itself. Uh, Rockstar's games are a lot talkier than Westerns, I would say, generally speaking. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I just I just really love the variety of settings as well. You start in a more sort of trad western uh sort of like small towns kind of like desert setting then you go to mexico and kind of get embroiled in a sort of civil war then you come back to what is basically a more modern version of life a, a more sort of like sophisticated town setting and there's a real sense that you're trapped between these different eras of of america like and and, and necessary changes coming one of the reasons i think i haven't played red dead redemption 2 matthew is it seems to like it seems a bit too connected to the story of this game i kind of i, I was hoping they do a new set of characters and stuff i understand that what they do is very sophisticated in red dead redemption 2 but i think this just makes such an impact as a story and a world that I kind of um I kind of would have wanted more of a clean break from it. But um nonetheless I um I, I adored this game at the time and I replayed it in twenty fifteen or twenty sixteen and I still thought it was fantastic. Obviously the ending to this game is kind of legendary. Matthew has dunked on um <laughs> some of the choices later in this story, which I uh, for reasons I, c- I kind of understand. But the switch of main character and some of the stuff they do to um, set up John Marston's eventual demise, particularly with the um, strange man character you meet out in the wild. Really, really impressive stuff. The best Rockstar storytelling had been up until that point. Matthew, what's your Mm. take on this one? Yeah, I I do love this game. I think I connected with it on a slightly cruder level just as like oh cool it is like a spaghetti western i can play and it looks like a spaghetti western and i love the gunplay and it is easy but i love how cool you look when you do it and i love the slow-mo i think it's really really well used i love this era of like weaponry i you know i love the kind of mechanical heft to everything when i first started playing this game for review i just i would just endlessly create trouble in armadillo that first town you arrive in just to get the police in and have a shootout around those eight houses honestly just that would have probably been enough for me like that just felt like oh this is like a western i'm running around on rooftops i'm hiding behind the saloon sign on top of the building that i've climbed on you know i'm sniping out sheriffs as they kind of dash from door stop uh, door front to door front it just that game just makes scenes from spaghetti westerns happen in a really satisfying way. As they get more sophisticated, it almost feels wrong to use them as just dumb throwaway play pits. Yeah. You know, my memories growing up with Rockstar Games is kind of causing chaos in GTA and then seeing, like, how many stars you can get up to and how long you could last. Like, that's that was messing about in those worlds. And now it feels like, you know, these characters are so sort of psychologically real that they're not really meant to be used for that in the same in some way yeah but i definitely got that from red dead redemption like it was just a you know it was a place where you could tie people up and put them on the railway tracks hilarious you know you could just create trouble and see what spiraled out of it very very fun i think it's it's like mission structure and design is a little tired now i think rockstar have got a bit better at that stuff it's the kind of go to this ride out to this very long dot and have a you know five minutes to a dot on the map and have a gunfight <laughs> with a very long conversation on the way i got a little annoyed by how many kind of quick timey event mechanics there are in it in terms of Jules. things which felt like they introduced and then they never really went anywhere or they didn't become like things that you did elsewhere in the game they made for like maybe more memorable cinematic missions and that's definitely a problem with their later games too but i don't know there's something a little a little off about that but 
yeah, as just a place where I could make cowboy fun happen, I absolutely love this game. I love the physics of like shooting people and watching them crumple or fall downstairs and stuff. Mm. Oh, it's just it's magic, isn't it? Yeah, it's fantastic. Just yeah, I, I echo that as well. I, I enjoyed the kind of open world elements to it as well. I think that I actually mm. didn't have a problem with the mission design. I appreciate that it was a bit shorter than GTA Four. Actually, I didn't need this to be a forty-hour game, and it wasn't. Yeah. It's was closer to like twenty I- hours. I think the thing that bugged me is, is I, I'm not a big fan of the Mexico section. Everyone says um, that, but I don't think there's. A, I don't actually think there's a dip there. I don't really get people's problems. It's, it's, it. it's just it's the classic like GTA Four thing of like there are these two things that are warring and you go and do favors for both of them mm. and you're just like ping ponging between them. I feel like I I'd, I'd done that like one too many times in a Rockstar game. Right, they're kind of playing both sides against each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I but that's 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 the only reason it drags. I mean, as an actual setting, great, and obviously you get the the famous riding your horse while a little jolly tune plays <laughs> jose gonzalez yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, jolly so you know th- yeah I'm, I'm definitely i you know there, there there's plenty of good stuff there i just felt like the the gta-ness of their thinking came through clearer there than it did elsewhere yeah i think that's probably fair i think that your point there about kind of causing chaos as a character who's quite rich emotionally is is a a weird thing as a player obviously this is the direction rockstar chooses to go in like you only really get hints of that sort of textured storytelling in the ps2 gtas uh, probably more so in san andreas and the other ones but you know in, in this generation they're obsessed with like being taken seriously on a storytelling level it seems yeah. which is you know and and press went along with it but you know arguably there is that whole element to you know the open world stuff that is talked about less i think trevor in gta 5 helps to offset that a bit by just being yeah. a guy who who would plausibly steal an airplane from a military base and just go yeah, shoot some like civilians. Your, yeah. yeah, he's like your maniac avatar. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. But yeah, I you know I won't spoil it because plenty of people probably still haven't played it. But you know, there's stuff in Red Dead Two where like just the character's life situation is so at odds with having fun yeah. that you're like, it would feel wrong for me to go and do all this cool stuff that you have put in the game. Yeah, but it just doesn't gel. I should play that at some hey, point, shouldn't I? Here, here's the kind of I'd say the cutoff point where it just about gets away with it. Okay, yeah, good stuff. Well, you know, I will play that second game at some point, Matthew, and have. Oh, do it's great, it's great. It looks so good. Yeah, well, I've just, oh, I've just finished, you know, a, a, a game that's coming out very soon. So I've got, um, I've got, I've now got a free slot. So, uh, yeah, good stuff. So that's twenty ten, then, Matthew. We've got some honourable mentions here. Should we fire through those? And um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you want to? Do you want to go first? Pick one. Yeah, I, I wanted a little shout out for the much maligned Metroid Other M. Mm-hmm. Which is wonky as hell, but has a core action mechanic of you can do a timed dodge. And if you do a timed dodge while you're charging your beam, it instantly charges up and you can deliver like a full powered shot. That core little jump blast, jump blast is so mechanically tight and satisfying that I cannot, <laughs> you know, I, I think that game is a, is a solid action experience, which is marred with narrative sort of fluff gumpf yeah just just a load of guff around the edges and you know it's been mean to death i think people are a little unfair on it i think they're ignoring that once you cut away all the story the metroid stuff in it's actually pretty decent and it's got some really nice mechanics so yeah yeah absolutely you know there's, don't um, hate on other end 
This it was also like probably the nicest looking Wii game there was. It just looked amazing. So shiny. Yeah. It was exciting. What a f- it was a fun thing to get excited about. Yeah, just possibly the wrong format. I wonder what uh, a world would have looked like if this had come out on like Wii U at launch or something. It might have been um, mm. might have been a bigger hit. But yeah, the story was terrible. I remember sitting through the cutscenes thinking, why have they done this? Like what were they thinking, really? The mm. just this very simpering, boring main character. But yeah, I um I thought it was uh, perfectly fine as an action game. So um yeah, nice to hear you give it a shout out. So, Heavy Rain, Matthew, I did consider putting this on the list. I will say that the illusion of playing this at the time was mass, like uh, was massively impressive. I really bought into mm. it. You know, I, we, we've obviously, like, the people have memed the terrible writing that's rife in this game. And, you know, there are complicated thoughts about David Cage generally and, you know, Quantic Dream. But I think their games always look fantastic. And this was the first time... I think I got into this in the way that I got into that first bit of Fahrenheit where you're, you know, hiding the body and stuff. I think that I really just bought into the idea of this interactive story and the mood mm. of it really worked for me. So I liked it, but um, except that it's, it's, it was very flawed in retrospect and couldn't make my top mm. 10. How about you? Yeah, I, yeah, like it's definitely worth playing. It's definitely interesting. I think people have got a very selective memory when they talk about the tone and the kind of sophistication of this game. There's a lot of talk about the scene where you make your son dinner as a as a lonely dad and a lot of people gloss over that it ends up with a big fight on a conveyor belt above a trash compactor. <laughs> <laughs> so it's uh, it's pure it's this game is pure ass by the end, I think. It is, um, yeah, but I, I felt like some stuff it did well. I liked Norman Jaden, like his sort of eye starting to bleed as he's using his eye his like glasses things. Yeah. And I felt the stakes of it, even though it's yeah. I mean, yeah, I just, I just feel it gets held up as this sort of um, high at the time is this sort of high sort of um, bar for oh we're moving on this is a lot more adult but there was also a scene where you got chased around a basement by a mad professor <laughs> so yeah but yeah. also but also I think that history has done its part to like our peers have done their part to like dunk on this game endlessly and there are probably more worthy targets but because yeah, but this it, is high-minded, like it paints the target its back a bit, you know? Like, at the time, when I reviewed this, I, I may have told this story before on here, like, I was sitting in the games cage, and a load of people came over from PlayStation, official PlayStation magazine, yeah. who I, hadn't, I didn't really know at the time, and they were like, uh, oh, we, uh, we, heard you don't, uh, we heard you don't like Heavy Rain, <laughs> you know? You think, you know, you think, think you're, you're better than Heavy Rain kind of vibe. <laughs> right. And it's like, yeah, actually... It ends with a fo- uh, on a conveyor belt of a 12 trash compactor. It's infantile. Uh, <laughs> but they came over and, like, strong on me. of like, ooh. You know, because they funny. didn't want to feel like they were silly, I think, because they'd given it 9 or a 10 or something stupid. Yeah. I, I probably would have given it, like, a, a 9 at the time. But, you know, I, I played a, a bit recently, and the writing is rough, but it does still look fantastic. Like, it's uh, you, yeah. you kind of just have to see it as a grand illusion. You either buy into it or you don't, yeah. and that's it, you know. But as a critic, you're really doing your job, though, and being bu- being bold about what this didn't do well and just pointing it out. And people were so willing to buy into it in the moment. I can see why that had real value as criticism. Yeah. So, you know, mm. uh, the strong arm story is very funny, though. So a, a very brief shout out for God of War 3, which I didn't think was the best in the series, but certainly looked amazing. Had probably like mm. the best. The opening where you're fighting Poseidon. I think you're cl- climbing Olympus. Did look fucking amazing. Uh, probably the best looking thing that ever happened on the PS3. Just phenomenal. But mm. um, generally speaking, just kind of felt like a bit of a retread. It wasn't it wasn't really a, a big heart pick for me either way, Matthew. Did you play that one? 
yeah, after the fact, and yeah, you know, it's God of War doing God of War thing. Yeah. Well, I like the bit where you chase after him with the fast sandals. That was three, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, yeah, I think so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> him, just it, like you chop off his feet or something. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very Kratos thing to do, isn't it? Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, imagine him telling that story in like God of War on PS4. So there was this fast guy, I chopped off his feet. It was like a whole thing. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, yes, good stuff. What about, what's another one of yours, Matthew? How do you feel about Splinter Cell Conviction? Yeah, I played this recently, thinking maybe I should have a take on it for the podcast. I think it's one of the most interesting exponents of like the Uncharted influence on games. Very hmm. story-led, quite short. Don't think it's either a phenomenal action game or stealth game. Not a bad merging of the two. What about you, Matthew? Yeah, that's pretty fair. I think a couple of the, 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 the ideas it introduced, like the mark and execute, are incredibly satisfying Hmm. that's like a really good power fantasy the idea of like if you can get all these headshots lined up and then i'll just ping them off and it looks incredibly cinematic um obviously that style like dominates now of kind of games that are kind of would rather be kind of cool looking than uh, mechanically deep but at the time it was super polished i love the co-op on this really good little co-op campaign with a with a sting in the tail, ah. which has to be experienced, I would say. Oh shit! Okay, I'm. I think I can guess what it is, but I. Uh, I now want to see that. That sounds cool. Yeah, it's good. It's. It's. You know, reuses a lot of the locations, but with two people doing all that cool mark and execute stuff, it's. It's. It's pretty fun. It's like the best of the game, kind of like multiplied. <laughs> yeah, to level a little bit of criticism in it, I would argue the mark and execute compensates for the fact that they didn't really give you proper over-the-shoulder aiming to do proper shooting. It's a bit more clicking with the stick to zoom and haphazard. So it's almost like yeah, they hobbled it that's... as an action game in order to make that mechanic cool. But that's, that's probably fair. It hard. also like really goes off the boil in like the last third. Yeah. Like The environments are quite playful and fun and you can like clamber around the outside and jump in and out of windows and then it sort of ends with quite a slog through like an airfield, I think. Yeah. I mean, um, not a popular take, but but the uh, torture scenes of this are pretty cool, actually. Um, they're pretty <laughs> dramatic and slamming dudes' heads into, like, you know, toilets and context-sensitive, like, animations on torturing dudes. I kind of dug that. I thought that was actually, like, pretty pretty different and pretty um, pretty exciting <laughs> in the moment, you know. It's very, like, Jack Bauer, wasn't it? It yeah. was kind of like, you'll do anything to, to complete the mission. Yeah, at a proper, like, contemporary angle on, like, what a splitter cell was though so yeah i maybe i'll try and play blacklist in time for our 2013 episode i've never played that before it's i i thought it was a big step down actually oh okay interesting well Mm. uh, i guess like another one of mine then matthew very quickly i will give a shout out to just cause 2 which i thought was a really fun sandbox game that you know basically fixed all of the problems of the first one Eh, most of the problems of the first one the world is still a big gorgeous anonymous location essentially it never has much of a kind of like you know you can't go to a town and be like oh wow the individual detail is amazing it's not that kind of game but Mm. it's like a game where you you know ride on the top of airplanes and stuff like um including like passenger planes and then you know use a grappling hook to sort of shoot off to uh, you know uh, another part of the environment you can sort of like um sort of sail through the sky forever with your parachute if you use your grappling hook properly just a really fun bold sandbox game that um you know was just a, a dependable eight out of ten that i played loads of in like one summer this year so right. i liked it do you play that at the time yeah no i didn't but i, I i've played it since but 
like big memories of sitting in the game's cage <laughs> like Andy Kelly reviewing this for PSN3 while I was like playing some terrible thing on our Wii CRT yeah yeah this just a very like this this is just a game that instantly takes me back to that period mm. so some sort of like weird nostalgia for it without having much connection to the game itself yeah any uh, what's another one of yours Matthew I, th- I felt like I should probably shout out Donkey Kong Country Returns which I think I think some people went nuts for this. I think some people really, really rate Donkey Kong Country. I don't think it's a hugely expressive platformer. For me, it's always felt like a little bit of a reaction test, or it, the characters don't have the same kind of like acrobatic grace as a Mario. They're they're a bit more. It feels like there's like a solution to the platforming, as opposed to like Mario who are trying to steer through the platforming. Because of that, it's quite hard. You know, it's kind of like do it my way or die. But some people like that. It's I, I always felt like this. This this was maybe a slightly bigger with like American reviewers and and gamers in general. Hmm. Like I didn't have I don't have much nostalgia for the original games. Like I, I always found them well similar. I, I mean, that's what's good about Returns, I guess, is that it's quite true to those Source games in terms of how it feels. And but it has the same limitations. It's it's kind of very sort of snazzy and can do these very um, impressive sort of set PC kind of uh, minecart rides or whatever, you know, like long chained platforming, kind of choreographed platforming set pieces, but they're also kind of limited and not not as satisfying to me to do. Hmm. But this is this is good. This is like rock solid. It's one I played on 3DS. So that was a fairly decent um, port of it. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, yeah, good, good choice. I was actually kind of surprised I didn't make your top ten, but um, hey, I yeah, it's just sense. not quite there. I think I still gave it like high high eighties, but it's it's not like it's just not Mario tier for me. Yeah, that that makes sense. Yeah, another one on mine then, Matthew is. Um, I thought I'd give a shout out to uh, Assassin's Creed Brotherhood, which I didn't actually make my top ten, but because I just thought it um, was a bit too of uh, much of a rerun of Assassin's Creed Two a year later. I'm very wary of series that become like yearly and i i thought that happened way too fast with assassin's creed eventually they dial it back but um it was you know it, visually it was it was like perfectly fine it was you know just more of the same really but in rome one location rather than multiple locations added all of these like um at the time like facebook games were big even though they were terrible sort of farmville style mechanics of like <laughs> um you know building up your own little brotherhood of assassins and uh, generally speaking, just didn't think it was quite as good as Assassin's Creed 2. Is that how you felt? Uh, yeah, I mean, like, impressive that, you know, the turnaround on this and, like, this probably, this seems to, like, mark the beginning of, like, Ubisoft going, oh, this is what we're going to do. We're just going to do a lot of this from now on. Yeah, yeah. And, like, we have the kind of core tenants of our game locked down, so let's just, let's just rinse them, which I guess is, like, bad in the long run. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> I feel like we're still playing this game in a way yeah um but uh yeah it's fine I, there's some people going real nuts for this I, I just don't know if i've got the like assassin's creed connection for it to be s- super up there for me yeah what's another one of yours then matthew Picross 3d <laughs> <laughs> okay uh, that was on my list at one point and i was like you know what i like i should probably take this off and put bayonetta on here because <laughs> that just that's so arbitrary Picross 3d is a delight it's Picross, except 
you're chipping away at these big blocks so it's got like a little kind of chiseling kind of feel to it it feels like you're chiseling these little um models out of cubes which i quite like very satisfying to play you know very tactile feeling on the ds but it's fundamentally just a very very enjoyable time waster rather than like anything super engaging but if you ever saw it in a cx for cheap i would pick it up because picross is rad if you haven't played it maybe a bit more substantially as well uh, this was the year where we had there was like a big battlefield bad company 2 scene in the office i don't know if it was the same for you Mm, there was some love for it i think yeah yeah this was just like you know one of the few games which i played with lots of future people which i think elevates it in my head i think if i'd been playing this by myself i just wouldn't have connected with it but that's true for battlefield i think it's a game that comes alive if you're playing it properly with friends in a squad Hmm. playing this loads with like xbox world and andy hart upon psm3 was big into it lots of people who i sort of like still think of them as their gamer tags because we played so much of this oh cool the iconic phrase of when the when the horn begins to sound because you're going to lose someone once bellowed uh yonder fail horn sounds uh (laughs) which then just became embedded in my head as as this very sort of poetic kind of we're fucked uh, quote. <laughs> Beyond um, a fail horn. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, very unpleasant because my gamer tag was Mr. Basil Pesto and I can't remember who it was, but so- someone started calling me the sex pesto, which really bugged me. <laughs> oh, dear. I think I stopped playing not long after that. <laughs> what would you prefer to be called now, Matthew? Sex pesto or gaming gammon? What's your choice, Sally? <laughs> gaming gammon? Gaming gammon is definitely le- less worse than the suggestion that you're a sex pest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I suppose so, yeah. Uh, and you're like, no, no, it's a riff on pesto. Yeah. <laughs> and that just doesn't sound real. <laughs> no, not really. It's yeah. not a good defence in court, I would say. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, cool. All right, I'll bundle a few more together then. Um, so I, I really enjoyed Split Second Velocity this year. That was the um, silly create-your-own-set-piece, kind of like with power-ups um, sort of Mario Kart riff that was done by BlackRock. This was their last game. Disney shut them down. I don't know why Disney... Disney and games, the whole kind of like load of nonsense i never understood what they were really doing in that space but um i enjoyed that and i also enjoyed need for speed hot pursuit which is a first entry in that series from criterion just really straightforward good like um street racing game basically and then i, I think mm. most wanted the 2012 one was the one that people really rated as being super rad so um yes good um good racing times matthew Mm, yeah and it's good times for everything i don't think there was any genre that was like massively underserved no i have like so many more honorable mentions here i'm just gonna fire through them like in a big a big list so i i yeah. really enjoyed like uh kingdom hearts birth by sleep on psp was like i don't know how they got that game looking and sounding so good on that console i know kingdom hearts are kind of a contentious thing on this podcast but this was a really really good handheld spin-off yeah a really nice kind of like a, a, the best like combat kingdom hearts game they've done to that point they st- steadily got better at that side of things similarly i thought that um <laughs> another game that like has no place in this podcast really i thought that the remake job they did for pokemon heart gold and soul silver was 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 quite good at the time that was a nice little nostalgia shot i like that it came with a pedometer <laughs> yeah 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 i mean did that encourage you to walk i assume not matthew uh, if anything, no, you walked I used to joke. It was like a nice that pedometer. Shame it came with a free copy of Pokemon. <laughs> very, very good. Yes. And so that aside, I, I've also um, I, I, meant, I mentioned as an admission here, uh, Metal Gear Solid Peace Walker 
which came out on PSP, super high budget PSP game, like undersold a bit, I think leads to probably some of the troubles that come up later on with um, Konami and Kojima. Just like probably should have been a HD console game, but was definitely made for a handheld. And the mechanics of which, uh, are, many of which are, are present in um, Metal Gear Solid Five later on. So, yeah. Did you play that mm. one, Matthew? I know Stanton was big into Peace Walker. Yeah, I did the, the, when they did the HD yeah. thing. 2012, uh, yeah. Whatever that, whatever that was on. I played it then. Yeah, I, that's when I played it too. And it's um, honestly just ha- ha- felt a bit pared down, but, you know, still really cool to... Um, that people can still play it on a system that's not a PSP. So, mm. yeah, I, I liked it, but I never finished it. And so I didn't feel like I could put it in my top 10. Probably not my favourite Metal Gear anyway, to be honest. So, uh, yeah. Mm. Any more from you, Matthew? Golden Sun Dark Dawn, mm-hmm. which we talked a little bit about on Games Court last week. Yeah. Uh, just a really great mix of RPG and temporal exploration using RPG powers usually confined to battles. Very fun. I like that a lot. Sin and Punishment Star Successor, aka Sin and Punishment Two, which I I liked a lot. I I didn't get like super super into it though. Definitely preferred Sin and Punishment One, and I must admit it's been a while, and I can't really justify that opinion. I'd have to replay it, but it's quite hard to play. But again, you know, considering where Nintendo are at, absolutely mad that we got this super hardcore treasure shooter at all. Where do we sit? It's Mafia 2 2010. Oh, yeah, it is. That did miss my list, yeah. Yeah, it, d- it didn't make my list. I uh, I don't know. I always felt that... Th- I feel this way generally with, with Mafia. It's that kind of weird middle ground between sort of epic open world setting, but for quite a linear game, and I can't quite marry those two things together in my head. Yeah. Like, it feels like a lot of wasted space, but it has got a really great sense of place. Yeah, I, I actually had it as my number 10 like two days ago. And then there was like a big shuffle between Final Fantasy Thirteen and Heavy Rain and stuff. So right, yeah, lo- lost out. But yeah, that was actually meant to be my main honourable mention. I almost completely forgot it. So I'm glad you brought it up. <laughs> yeah, I think it probably didn't help that it arrived like right after Red Dead as well. Mm. So in and like you know in the wake of GTA Four, I think it did hold its own as a as a kind of uh, a shooter and you know as a story game. But I think that I d- I didn't mind the open world setting stuff. No, I thought it was it was. Like a, a rich feeling film set, really. I think um, mm. we've discussed in the past that Ellie Noir feels largely similar in that, like, very much so, yeah. Yeah, it's like this doesn't need to be here, but I like that it is here. I would prefer this to a series of levels just connected by cutscenes. So, yeah, I, I, I think it. I think it's definitely one of the highlights of the year. Seemed to be quite a divisive game. Like I remember, I think it got a four from Eurogamer, right. which is very very harsh. But over time, I think its reputation's hold, held up. The way it connects back to the original Mafia really really good i don't know if you know how that oh you would know because you played the remake right so um mm-hmm. the connection there is really really cool but um yeah i don't know if it, i don't know if it's like one of the all the top tier games in a year that had lots of top tier games i don't think it quite is you know but it's it, I mean, it just shows how rich this year was yeah this year also had red steel 2 mm-hmm. the return of my favorite definitely a much better game a big wii motion plus showcase bit more of a kind of full-on like arcade experience like it's it's definitely better but i don't particularly love it but the mag liked it it got well reviewed but there was no there was something a bit it was almost like going a bit more for like a um like a first person kind of devil may cry type vibe Mm -hmm. you know it was it was a lot more about kind of sort of comboing stuff together if i remember correctly and it didn't quite land for me as a sort of shooter 
Yeah, which is absurd because it's definitely better than Red Steel 1, which I gave a 92, of course. <laughs> um, so, you know, people slapping their heads at that. But, you know, I'll be, I'll be honest, I don't have a huge connection with Red Steel 2. Yeah. Those are it for all of my um, sensible uh, honourable mentions, Matthew. The rest is just a bunch of nonsense. I had like a, I had a weird like existential crisis at Christmas where I was meant to go home at ten a.m. and I just sat in my flat and played Star Wars: The Force Unleashed two three times over. I just completed it three times in a day and ended up getting a ten p.m. train back. Um, oh, weird. I just, I had a, it was a weird year. There's a lot going on. It's a bit. Uh, it's a bit. Um, Alan Partridge with the Toblerones. <laughs> Very much so. Yeah. Do you have any more honourable mentions you want to throw in there? I mean, there's there's so many games from this year, but I think I've talked about the really important ones. I was just going to say, I wish I liked Alpha Protocol more. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's like, but I just uh, like it. It feels like a very us kind of game. It feels like the kind of game this podcast would get behind. Yeah, but I think it is just too shit. <laughs> yeah, it is really ropey. I mean, I I tried <laughs> like, playing it for the first time about three or four years ago, and it's like it needed that extra layer of polish, and it didn't have it. Yeah, I don't know. I appreciate people's uh, affection for this game though. Um, years later, but. Yeah, weird mm. sell. Sega did not know how to sell this game. It was tough, a tough, a tough break, you know. Oh, weird, weird. Else, is that strange? Bauer Bond or something, wasn't it? Yeah, it, yeah, a bit odd watching all these talking meat puppets try and be like sexy Bond characters and stuff. It's just <laughs> very, very out there. But yeah, yeah, not one I ever finished either. I played about six hours. And I was like, yeah, I yeah, get the of this. My life can move on now. So yeah, good good stuff, Matthew. That was like a, a monster episode, but there was a yeah, lot of ground to cover. A lot of ground to cover. Uh, you can go lie in bed now because you've been like quietly ill this whole time. So um, <laughs> I feel bad making you. Um, you if go. Any, so if any of my takes were really off, that's just the illness speaking. Yeah, that's why uh, Matthew's so down on Bioshock Two. He's just uh, out of his mind with fever. So um, that's that's why my number one game was Michael Jackson: The Experience. <laughs> Uh, that's dated really well. That game. Let's uh, let's face it. The experience, the Michael Jackson experience today is a very different thing. I would say so. Yeah. Good. A nice dark joke to end on there. So, <laughs> Matthew, where can people find you on uh, social media? Uh, Mr. Basil underscore Pesto. I'm Samuel W. Roberts on Twitter. This was um, a, a massive episode, but next week is a very exciting one too. We've got the N64 mini draft. So. For those who enjoyed the PS2 one and the game developer draft, those have been proven to be very popular episodes. We're um, excited about auditing the catalogue of that console, so people can look forward to that. If you'd like to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, we'd appreciate it. Loads of you have. It's um, great to see such a positive response on there, but that helps us find new listeners, which we really appreciate. And um, if you want to follow the podcast, it's BackpagePod on Twitter. We also accept listener questions at backpagegames at gmail.com. But um, thank you very much for listening. I will be back next week. Bye for now.